This is Cinema Degeneration. Uh, well, when Charlie first uh, approached me with the um, title, Arcade, and that he wanted to do a horror film set in an uh, arcade situation, um, I had been reading some articles about virtual reality and thought it was an interesting uh, framework for uh, a horror film to take place in. Inferno, the ultimate video game, has come to life. This is arcade, and it's all done in virtual reality. It's so real, you'll actually think that you're in the game. I am arcade. If you want to play games, you pick the wrong machine. You gotta try this thing. And all you need to play are two quarters and your soul. I think the game is alive somehow. If you won't play the game by my rules, then I'll play in your world. Now, two teenagers will play for their lives. Kiss reality goodbye forever! and enter an electronic world where virtual reality has become flesh and blood. Congratulations, Alex. You've almost made it to the final level. Kiss reality goodbye. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration and our Albert Pune Appreciation Month. We are well into the month of Pune, and we are going to be talking one of his full moon, you know, editions, and and be talking with one of our full full moon alumni. Uh, we're going to be reviewing and dissecting 1993's Arcade, and we're talking shop with my wonderful co-host from Howling at the Full Moon, Dustin Hubbard. How the hell you doing, man? Hey, doing very well. Very happy to be here tonight to talk about this one. Now, I know I've already know this off, off from off the air, but uh, you know, for the the folks at home, this is probably by far your favorite Albert Pune movie, and, and your one of your two, probably top favorite moon flicks right yes easily it's my favorite pune movie uh period and as far as full moon goes it is definitely my number one uh top full moon movie of the near 400 plus title catalog absolutely hands down no question there's no competition now i i probably got can hazard a guess why but can you maybe fill us in and for the especially for the folks at home what is it about this movie that that clicks and resonates with you so much uh 
too many things. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure I will point out a lot of them as we discuss specifics with the film. But uh, it's just one of those movies to me. It's hard to explain. It's when I watch it, it's when I watched it for the very first time. And to this day, you know, almost uh, what, 30 years later, it is a very uh, transformative experience watching this movie i can if i feel uh like i need inspiration while i'm writing i can play arcade in the background and it will help me focus uh it's just it's something that just connected to my my psyche like from day one i rented it day one when it came out uh no joke fell in love with this movie uh, it was the first movie I ever bought on VHS tape from the Full Moon Fan Club. Oh, wow. I paid $60 for a tape Ooh. of it. And I still have that tape to this very day. I watched that tape probably 40 or 50 plus times. <laughs> so <laughs> That doesn't some, surprise me. Got some good rotation. I got my money's <laughs> worth out of it. You know, so uh, it's it's a... Uh, this is, a, this is a heavy, heavy one for me, so. All right, right on, right on. Well, let's go ahead and get right off into it. Uh, we'll start with the IMDb synopsis, which won't take us very long, folks, because it's about a half a sentence long. It's not even a real sentence, I don't think. <laughs> but Arcade from 93 is as follows. A virtual reality game begins taking over the minds of teenagers. And that is it. But that is not what this... It, it, I mean, it is partly what this movie is about, but it's like... <laughs> it's so much more than all that. Let's see. Yeah, that's a very, very just tip of the iceberg as far as what's going on in this movie. Yeah, it's... Uh, oh, God. <laughs> the... I, I just I, I I wonder who writes half of these uh, IMDb synopsis because it's <laughs> they don't seem like they put their their due diligence in and actually maybe mm, I don't know watch the movie that they're you know they're uh, not reviewing but you know doing a synopsis for but anyway anyway uh, this was a uh, you know directed again by Albert Pune was uh, shot pretty much back to back with Dollman. Uh, it was written by Ban and David S. Goyer, who has recently wrote, you know, things like Sandman series, uh, the new Hellraiser. But he also was linked to other uh, movies, such as uh, a little movie called Demonic Toys and mm -hmm. Kick Kickboxer 2, you know, other another <laughs> movie and uh, Dark City, Blade, etc., etc. You know, he's written a lot of stuff. But this stars uh, some Full Moon alumni. It has uh, Megan Ward in it. And uh, you know, also some Albert Pune alumni with Norbert Weiser as Albert. Affectionately yep. named Albert. <laughs> yes, this I, I said this with you off the air. I think as far as cast goes, this movie has probably one of the most eclectic ensemble casts of any Full Moon movie. Yeah, because, I mean, it has Megan Ward, Peter Billingsley, you know, Ralphie from A Christmas Story. We also got, you know, John Delancey, 
uh, Don Stark. Yes, that Don Stark, you know, from that 70s show is Finster in like one scene, but it's a powerful scene. Yep. John Delancey, I mean, Q is uh, kind of the uh, unwitting accomplice differed. And, yep. you know, uh, I mean, Seth Green, who has done countless things, including Robot Chicken, A.J. Langer, who was also uh, in, uh, oh, uh, Escape from L.A., and a couple yep. others that are escaping my mind right now and then right away. Yeah, AJ Langer would go on to be in really popular shows like My So Called Life. That's what I was trying to remember. And people like Seth Green, I mean, yeah, he was like a younger child star at this point, but like he would go on to major movie success and become a household name after things like the Austin Powers movies and then go on to be a an incredibly successful producer and uh other lesser known people, like I mean, like Brian Datillo, who played Greg, went on to have an insanely successful career with soap operas and has been soap acting for like 30 years. And Sharon Farrell, who plays Alex's mom, she has had a very successful film career. She's been in numerous cult films, including being the mom in uh, Night of the Comet. And she also had a very successful soap career as well. And uh, as a child, I always remembered her appearing in a lot of Kenny Kingston infomercials about the psychic network and that oh. kind of shit, <laughs> you know. And I remember seeing those, but I didn't put it the two and two together that that she was, uh, you know, uh, that that was her. I, I never thought of that, but I remember yeah. seeing those commercials all the time. Yeah, and then you know, like Megan Ward, she was kind of like the signature star for you know one of those signature faces for Full Moon. She was, you know. Like, this project was, I believe, developed specifically with her in mind as the lead. And Peter Billingsley, he'd had some good success with A Christmas Story, but that was something that, as time passed, it began to to endure. So, I mean, he wasn't really a household name at the time, but I think with John Delancey, he was, he was big, you know, as far oh, yeah. as like, I mean, the genre is concerned at the time, because he was cute, you know? So that was kind of a, a big casting coup for them. And even so. some of the crew they put together, Alan Howarth, uh, you know, did the music. He would, did sound work and stuff for Star Trek, Escape from New York, Big Trouble Little China. You know, I mean. Loads of Carpenter classics. Yeah, as I saw, mm-hmm. he even did The the Dentist, you know, I mean, The, mm-hmm. the Mask, things like that, Dracula. You know, I mean, he did a whole bunch of shit. And... Uh, as I made a note here, I didn't know his name, but I started to go down the rabbit hole. The cinematographer, uh, George Morodian, or Mordian. Yes. Yeah, did, George Morodian. You did loads of TV work, like, and and I, I mostly wrote down like the the movies he did because he did a lot of Pune stuff. I'm going to rattle yes. off a list here. He did Blast, Mean Guns, Crazy Six, Omega Doom, which we previously reviewed nemesis two three and four uh adrenaline doll man brain smasher and then did did camera work on movies like star man escape from new york blues brothers so this guy you know you know he, he has he has uh, s- some clout too so yeah Definitely. the the crew in, in front and behind the camera was just amazing with this uh i think it needs to be said that this movie probably has one of the darkest openings uh, for uh you know a full moon flick you know and even especially an albert Pune flick but opening with the aftermath of like alex's mom's suicide it's really dark like right off the bat you have those moments later in the movie with the sort of you know 
the full moon e aspect you know and anyone listening to this knows what i mean by that but that mm-hmm. stuff is very tempered with some very serious drama and personal conflict that is not typically present in full moon movies which i think makes this movie extremely unique in the overall catalog because it's not just a movie about silly puppets attacking people or little creatures doing antics it's there's some moments of real character drama that have weight that play into the more full moon uh light kind of Mm -hmm. content and it's balanced pretty well in my opinion yeah, th- but it is, it is, yes, it is very dark, though, at points, especially that opening, you know, you know, after the opening credits finish, uh, the first minute or so is really heavy shit. Yeah, it's like, you know, the flashback to her mom laying their brains blood out all over the place. And then she's with her, you know, her therapist and it's like, and it's done in a really nice long take where the camera just slowly creeps in where, yeah. you know. Uh, Alex, Megan Ward's character, is just talking to her therapist, and she's just like, "Oh, you know, you don't have to leave now just because the the buzz, the timer went off." She's like, "Nope, nope, I gotta go. You know, um, I, I got a class. I'm out." Yep. In a sequence that I have to note is the darkest, gloomiest, lit room with an open window. <laughs> yeah, it was it's, pretty dark, wasn't it? It is a very strange visual juxtaposition of like there is light. <laughs> But the room is so dark and depressing feeling like there's a there's a mood in there. And it's that mood is uh, carried with Alex's horrendous story, you know, that she and that she ends that session with, uh, I believe the counselor's name is Mrs. Weaver. She ends that session with just like life's fucked, like everything sucks. Her dad's crazy. There's no fixing it. Mom's dead. That's the end. There, there is no fixing. Yeah, and this is what's like broken. And it needs to be said too that this is a you know takes place a year after her mom had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's been dealing with this trauma for a year plus. And it's something that it's never expressed in the movie that I feel like part of the anyone I can I can say that I am grateful to not ever have been in a position like that where I've known someone that did that. I know people who have been in that position, though. And one of the biggest points to bring up in a situation like that, I think, is the the why. And sometimes you have a why, whether it makes sense to the survivors or not. But I think one of the things that makes it that much more rough in this movie is is that there is no reason why yeah doesn't even know why so even that's at the end when they you know, on her. when the mom you know or we'll, we'll jump around here just a little uh-huh. bit but we can do that because uh, you know this movie's uh 30 years old if you haven't seen it by now you, you should have seen it and if you haven't seen it by now shame on you uh but you know at the end when the arcade is the 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 game itself is trying to trick her into thinking that her mom is still there 
the, the mom, the only thing that she says is just like, you know, oh, you let me down. And that was like really it. And she's like, but I didn't yeah. let you down, you know. When she asked her, she says, you would tell me if something was wrong, right? And she's just like, she just smiles and nods, which I think is kind of uh, one of the moments of maybe some of the the re-editing and redubbing of dialogue. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple moments of uh, a couple shots of Sharon Farrell where she's making facial expressions that don't always seem like they maybe fit the tone mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. um it helps add to the bizarrely surreal vibe of what's happening and yeah that's her only real uh statement but even when that statement is said that's coming from arcade posing as her mom so it's not even alex's real mom saying it so there is no there is no reason she just did it and uh the aftermath has pretty much just ruined her her and her dad's life there's just there's no there's no bright side basically her only bright side is is uh you know hanging out with friends and her relationship with her boyfriend which when yeah. you're a teenager is like that's everything to you you know yeah if you the, have your, your boyfriend or girlfriend of the of the 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 time being and your group yep. of friends that you happen to have at the moment totally that's like your be all end all so and she has that thankfully you know she has a pretty pretty dedicated boyfriend you know and yeah, yeah i was uh, gonna say at least the character of greg is not a sleaze bag you most of the time they're either you know they're uh, they're chauvinistic or, or, or to yeah. an extent or, or they're cheating or they're leches or, you know, they're something, yep. but he's legit. He's a legit dude. He's a good guy. Yep. It's, it's one of those moments where it's like, there's, I don't think there's a single unlikable person in her friend group. They're all, they're all unique and interesting and likable in their own weirdly left, left of the center kind of way. And he's a good boyfriend. He's very nice. He's very supportive of her. You know, he worries about her feelings. You know, he wants to treat her right and take her to dinner. And, you know, he asks, you know, basically for permission if he can go test the game first. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah. he put he is into putting her first, you know, and her friends and even- are all cool. Well, yeah, yeah and like the friends are all, all good like they they rib each other you know but it's all good natured ribbing it doesn't ever feel like uh you know mean girl type shit it's never it's never mean or disingenuous and i think that one of the things i think one of this movie's strongest aspects is the group of characters because i think the especially the scenes where we have all the friend group i think that those are moments where it really excels a lot i think because the cast they all and they all got along so well and had genuine fun making this movie so that translated you know when you have people that really get along and have charisma off camera that really translates when they're in front of the camera and a lot of their stuff was there was a lot of improv too probably mostly from seth green but uh you know yeah there, yeah well, I would imagine was, so there was there was room with with pune to to play and really play off of those aspects because that was an aspect that made him interested in this movie was the kids and the the bonds and you know how they would move forward with a situation like this. 
Yeah, and then the opening scenes, you know, past the that kind of dark and bleak opening with the the flashback and the the therapist when they're all just talking, you know, about like, hey, let's go to Dante's Inferno is and you know, a new game's getting released arcade. We'll get to play, you know, like a demo or a beta version of, of it. You know, they're all just kind of like, yeah, let's you know, let's go for it. And again, you know, Greg asked for permission. He's like, hey, you know, before we go out, you know, want to go out there, test out the game, and then we'll go out for dinner. I'll take you someplace nice. You know, it's he asked permission. That's the thing you never see in these kind of movies is somebody that most of the time they just like, oh, I'm going to go and do this. I'm assuming that that's all right. Uh-huh. It's de- it's it's a case where I think that if we had ever gotten the proverbial sequel or sequels plural it would have been interesting to grow with these characters and see where they took them next if they were part of the continued story because i think there was a lot of there was a lot of weight with those characters emotionally and uh there was a lot of room i think to expand on them uh in further storytelling but we never got there for many, many reasons. So, you know, and I, I took a, a notice uh, or took a note here that it's amazing to me, especially, you know, later on once they're immersed in the world, when, you know, Alex and Nick go into like the arcade world at the end, when they're fully immersed in this world, how far graphics have come since then. But at the same yeah. time, how good they were at the time frame with the, was this release, you know, yeah, this was the, filmed in like 91. Like, look really good. I think they look in some ways, they look far more advanced than what you had in something like Lawnmower Man, which was like the big studio movie. I think they're less laughable looking in this movie. They're more grounded feeling. Yeah, I mean they're they're more grounded. That it feels more like a it, the, like the world once they're in it kind of feels like the video game Doom just without mm-hmm. all the shooting. Mm-hmm. And there are moments in I think something that helps that too is is that in, there are moments here and there in some of that where they there is real environment, physical tangible location and objects integrated into computer animation worlds that really sell. Uh, a real physicality to what they're doing. Whereas if you watch something like the lawnmower man, it, when Jeff Fahey ascends as Joe, <laughs> and you know what part I'm talking about? Like, Oh it, yeah. It looks like a video game. It looks like something you would have seen on like super Nintendo at the time. This does not to me. You know, it, it doesn't. And it, you know, makes me wonder because I've only seen the a couple of like snippets of what the original graphics looked like before, you know, for folks at home that don't know this got into a full moon, got into a little trouble with Disney, kind of got a cease and desist letter because of the the sky, uh, not skyscrapers, but the um, sky, the sky cycles, cycles. Yeah, the sky cycle chase still kind of reminds me a bit of what they thought it reminded them in the first draft of the effects, but it reminded me of Tron, which, oh, it reminded Disney of Tron too. So they, they had to scramble to remake it. And I really think like, just on a side note, 
the Dark Riders, as uh, the little boy calls them when they're in there, look yeah. fuck freaking cool. They're awesome. Oh, they're, incre- they're incredible. I, mean, the, the, I think some of the moments where the digital effects are actually at their peak in this movie is when they're literally in level five at the City of Light and you have the Sky Cycle chase and the, the Dark Riders and the huge skyscrapers of light and stuff it's and the explosions and the you know the the exploding (laughs) graphics and stuff it's very sharp looking i think it's very sharp it's very pretty it's very visually appealing yeah like they say in the beginning when i think it's nick is or is it nick or greg that's talking about he said this got dynamite graphics br wave of the future and he they were right reality (laughs) <laughs> reality is the wave of the future and i mean it would be not for a couple of more decades but now everybody's got oculus headsets and playstation virtual reality sets i mean like it, it's all over the place right now but yeah, you know i what think about- at, the, at the time they thought this was going in the direction of where nintendo tried to take it i think with uh, a brief moment where nintendo had the do you remember the virtual boy yeah i do i never had one but i remember it uh, I yeah, I don't think it was around long enough for too many people to have one. <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's where, where at, at the time people thought this was gonna go, though. You know, and yeah. we, we'd have the future where everyone's living in virtual reality and <laughs> all this stuff. You know, like you know, they, they like, were just a couple of decades off, living in the matrix basically. But it, it never really quite <laughs> came. It to was a different that way. It was just a different world back then. You know, yeah, the future never actually. Uh, unfolds the way that perception or especially film tells us that it will. <laughs> so but uh, yeah well but, film technology is never the same as uh real technology yeah. it's always a little and, exaggerated and and for what it's worth being 30 years later i think that you know there are probably some moments where the effects don't look the greatest by 2023 standards where we are today but there are moments I think that genuinely still hold up just as good today as they did back then. And I think that some of these oh, effects same. have aged incredibly better than the effects in some other films that would, you know, movies like, oh, well, like you were even talking lawnmower man or even lawnmower man two for that matter, or, mm-hmm. or a movie like spawn, you know, where yep. the effects do not hold up. Uh, I think this holds up much better. Movies where you know they were literally trying to exploit the at hand technology of like we can do anything. We have virtual reality and computer <laughs> and all this stuff, and we can we can make anything happen. And computer animation only goes so far. I mean, it's not all going to look like Jurassic Park and Lord of the Rings, you know. Like it sometimes it comes off really badly, and I remember you know. <laughs> few handful of years back i remember revisiting the first craft movie the craft and there's some moments especially towards the end where they just start using kind of unnecessarily trying to be showy and they're using like weird computer effects to like computer animation and it looks fucking terrible like it's embarrassing (laughs) this was like a studio movie made for a couple million dollars but they thought and they were playing they with their. They thought they were playing with the stuff of which dreams are made of, and then they yeah. figured out it was more or less a nightmare. <laughs> totally, and, it, and it's like in retrospect, a movie like this still looks and plays 
better than movies like that to me as far as like those effects are concerned so uh and i mean they 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 obviously you mentioned the original effects which were i believe done by a company called digital fantasy as who designed the original effects but it was deemed after the fact that i think that was one of the deciding factors that a lot of that just did not work and they went back and um, a new company was found called DHD Post Image up in Montreal. And they were brought in to revamp and completely rebuild all the computer effects from the ground up. Now, if I think I remember right, without cheating and looking up a second time, I think the budget for this movie was, what, 650000 roughly? Which Probably. Like- they, were, they were pretty... By Hollywood standards, that's like, you know, low budget, but by independent horror, low budget film standards, that's insane amounts of money still. Yeah, and just for inflation, I'm sure that's probably about two and a half million by about today, 2023 dollars. And I mean, you got to consider you had the, the initial budget of this movie. And then when it was decided to the different reasons including like the effects and i think a lot of what what was had and the initial cut that was put together which i feel like i think was done in a week uh everything was not was very uncohesive mm. i don't think it flowed well i don't think it made a lot of sense and the the effects weren't working and um uh, who would later go on to be the accredited associate producer, Daniel Schweiger, was tasked with the job of basically overseeing behind the scenes on this. And basically he was in charge of taking this movie and finding the correct people and guiding them and overseeing a, an overhauled post on this where they basically he had... Uh, Peter Billingsley, who was interested in learning more about Post, because he was interested in being more behind the camera instead of in front of it. Which has served him well. I mean, he's went on to be in, like, you know, and co-produced, you know, Spider-Man and Iron Man and a bunch of others. So, yeah, it's worked out well for him. Totally. So, I mean, they had people like him and uh, the effects artist, uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, you know, or, or he is an effects artist, but they, uh, him and uh, Peter Billingsley worked basically. They their credit they were credited, I believe, as additional editing. Uh, there was a contractual obligation that the original editor, who is billed as Miles Winton, would get credit. I believe that was actually the true editor's dog's uh. name. It wasn't oh, a real the dog's name. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a real person, but that was the contractual agreement that that was the name that would be billed as lead editor. But they went in and basically rebuilt the movie from the ground up. Um, anyone who really is interested can find the original cut of this movie with the original graphics, the original cut, the original score, all that stuff. You can watch that cut. It's on YouTube, at least last I looked. Uh, it is a far, far inferior film compared to the existing version because what the additional editors did, and you know, it, that and that, you know that all works into the budget too. Because I mean, they 
it, it ran over like an additional you know it was supposed to be out in like 91 i think and it ended up coming out in like 93 almost two years later so there was a lot of prolonged post work and that's paying you know for you know the editing suite and like literally going in you know day after day after day constantly for weeks and months on end just yeah like i said literally no joke rebuilding this movie from scratch yeah there's a like from cut to cut like there's literally like almost every cut looks different it's a different movie yeah so they literally built it from the bones on out (laughs) deleted scenes daniel schweiger was able to kind of rewrite a lot of it in post they you know they got to meet a lot of the cast bring them back in get adr redo some vocal stuff and you know just remold the story into something that worked and made more sense and, a oh, lot and it worked out for him. I, I haven't seen the previous cut, but if you're telling me it's it was a lot less coherent than I'm willing to believe it. You it's, know. An, it it's an interesting thing to watch. I'd love to see it just as an oddity. If you say it's on YouTube, I'll have to look and see if I, I can find it. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to watch. I can kind of leave it at that. I'm not going to say that I think that it's recommended viewing, though. I think that it's. Like I said, it's it's very inferior to this because there's so much there's additional dialogue and scenes that aren't in the final version there's you know there's a there's a fight between alex and laurie on the dock after the liar's paradox that just doesn't make any sense there's additional dialogue with her and nick in the car just weird Mm -hmm. takes that feel off the completely yeah. different score doesn't suit the movie and that was by tony riveretti who is a very good composer uh, i just i and it could be just that i'm so mentally and emotionally married to the release version in america it's the release version anyway um mm-hmm. that and after having watched it 50 60 70 times first where i know the movie shot by shot almost word for word and then i go and watch this alternate version it just it doesn't work in any way whatsoever. it feels like something that came out of a different version in the like in the multiverse like this is totally. the version that came out and in that, a different universe and that alternate version was professionally released in other countries it did see release uh on videotape and it it had television play in places like you know Argentina, Italy, you know, the Netherlands. I heard it also, like, yeah, I was going to say Germany and Italy were listed as places that it got released on, uh, that version got released on VHS. <laughs> Played on Mexican television, you know, it's like, uh, so, I mean, that, that version is very, like, what was readily available in other countries. Uh, so, you know, in other countries, that was, that's what they know. So if, <laughs> if there's a me over in like, you know, Germany or the Netherlands and they saw that and they're like, that's the one they're really, you know, invested in. <laughs> I, I know one or two people who prefer the original cut. So, I mean. Well, that's the, the version they've grown up with. So it's the good, same as, good, yeah. Good for them. Yeah. You know, but I, I don't think that there's, I don't. It's weird because, I mean, as a producer, I feel like there's always you can always do something with a movie in post. I don't ever think a movie is unreleasable. 
you just have to be willing to put in the time and effort and sometimes the money and a little extra TLC to make something that works. Right, right. And it's that's very what it rarely, if ever, where it's not fixable. Yeah, and that was kind of one of those things where it was like, you know, Dan was in charge of overseeing this, and, you know, he was kind of the middleman between, you know, the, you know, doing all this hardcore remodeling of the, the final product and, and Charlie, you know, and get getting the money to make, you know, keep doing it, you know, on the, on the hope that we're going to have something that will sell and be marketable. And I think it's, I think it works incredibly well. Uh, I don't know how well it was perceived uh, at the time. I know that there was a brief moment where they had announced a sequel. Yeah, I feel like that ending screams sequel. Oh yeah, there was, there was, uh, I mean, we're obviously getting off track from the story, but there was. That's okay, we can, it's our show. We do that, so. We can do There was we a moment. Uh, I remember there was an issue <laughs> where they used to have the the terror teletype where it was kind of like the old school version of like, you know, getting your getting your news where it was just like a big paragraph of news blurbs like this person got hired to do this. This movie got greenlit by this company. These people got added to the cast of this movie. And it was just like a big paragraph, you know, of of news blurbs like that. And I remember at the very bottom of the second issue I ever bought of Fangoria. I don't remember what issue it was. I don't remember what the cover of it was. I remember it was the issue right after the 15th anniversary issue, which was an all werewolf issue with Wolf on the cover. So it was the issue after that. The very last blurb in the Terror Teletype said Daniel Schweiger had been hired to direct Arcade 2 for Full Moon Entertainment. And just never So excited. And it never came to fruition, but I know that... Uh, between Dan and Robert, there were uh, treatments and treatments and potentially a full script for at least one arcade sequel. Uh, there was a, there was, I believe, an actual script for Arcade Two: Electric Nightmare. Electric Nightmare. Oh, that's. Oh. And, and there was a, I believe, a treatment. I could be wrong. Uh, for a part three, I don't remember the subtitle, um, but it was, I remember reading it somewhere and it was something in a conversation with one of the people behind the scenes. And I believe part three had something to do with a digital sorceress of some type coming into the real world from the arcade world. And. Part four was literally deemed uh, the treatment was uh, arcade for death to arcade, where arcade had uh, had a large stranglehold uh, operating out of the Grand Canyon. So they moved on from Dante's Inferno, I take it. (laughs) Yes. So uh, arcade was somehow in the Grand Canyon and uh, the only person that could stop him was. Jack Death, D E T H Death to Arcade. Ah, okay.
there were there were ideas and you know motion for sequels but it, they never happened and you know a few years after this movie saw proper release probably about two years later was where full moon basically imploded at paramount and all of that was dissolved and a lot of the major cash flow went away and i think financially there was it was just not feasible to make a sequel to this anymore so yeah that's sad that's sad oh well we we still got this movie you know but i think the the no i gotta ask you a question here who do you consider to be the mvp actor of this movie because i know who i i i i think is norbert weiser as albert as the 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 technician Uh, who put it together i i love him in this yeah, it, that's a hard that's a hard one because um, I can tell you who my favorites are. I think I think Megan's great. I think she's I think she's genuinely incredible. Uh, it's a tall statement. She's one of my favorite final girls in in horror period in this movie, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, I think Seth Green's really hilarious in his moments. I I think he feels. I don't think they use that. I don't think they used him enough because I figured it, his his it, character is still just kind of disappears for a good thirty minute chunk of the there's, movie. There's a weird moment where all those characters sort of exist in their group scenes, you know, and then each character I feel like gets some of the, the quote unquote friend group. Each one of them sort of kind of has a bonus scene. Like Seth's is when him and Nick are waiting outside the school, and Alex is like, "Where's everyone at? We always meet here," you know. Yeah, after they get out of yeah. Dante's Inferno yeah. previous so night. Seth yeah, gets that, Seth gets that bonus scene. You know, you have the friend group scene. There's his bonus scene. You have all this other friends. They have their bonus scenes in the game board. Yeah, yep, that's pretty Brady much it. He has her bonus scene where they go to try and save her. Yeah, and ben, really, Ben's is the only one that doesn't get. No, he he's he ends up he's the one he's drowning in the goo, isn't he? Yes, in level he does, two. Yes, but I'm saying like they all three have their bonus. They all three have their scene in the game board. Mm-hmm. Beyond yeah. their scenes, Ben's is the only one of the bunch that doesn't have like a bonus scene of his own. He's the lesser uh, developed, I think, of the bunch. Yeah, he's the one, if you notice at the end, you know, which, again, I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we get there. But after everything's said and done and you get to the resolution and everyone's there, uh, Ben's is the only one who says nothing. He's just there. <laughs> like he's Poor just, Ben's. Yeah, so, I mean, he's kind of like the, the, the dist one of the bunch. But, like, I think of them, though, I think Seth is really fun and definitely yeah. underutilized. I think... I think John Delancey is sometimes I'm not sure if he's overacting it or underacting it. Yeah. He writes that fine line of, of, of being overdone of, or underdone. Yeah. He's sort of a weird mystery in this movie where it's like, sometimes it feels like he's really chewing scenes. And then sometimes it feels like he's like on autopilot, but he's a, different is a fascinating character that I want to know more about. But I mean, if we want to go there truthfully, yeah, the the MVP probably is Norbert Weiser. And, you know, you and I have talked about Norbert Weiser in the past when we when we reviewed Omega Doom. And he was like one of the the shining lights in that post-apocalyptic oh, 
movie. Uh, he's great. He's a, he has always been a great, weird, quirky character actor, and he's very neurotic and nervous and scatterbrained as Norbert the programmer. And he knows what's done. He doesn't really see there being a problem with it, but he knows there's a problem with it because he even goes so far as to tell them, you know, well, my best advice, don't play this game because he knows there's a problem with it. Yeah, like he, he straight up tells her, do not play this game. Yeah, he but he kind and... of walks the line of like, eh, I know what we did. It's not a big deal. I don't care, but you know, don't play. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, truthfully, I, I would probably have to agree of, of the performances. His is definitely the 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 quirky standout of the bunch. There's definitely much like Difford. There's there's not enough of him. He's very underutilized. But the time that both of those characters get is very effective for me. Yeah. And another one that I, I like, another character is Don Stark as Finster, not the guy who runs the uh, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> Now, like my first one of my first notes in here is like Finster would have assault charges brought up to, to up his <laughs> wazoo today. He's slapping stilts in the face and uh, the bully. What the hell was the bully's name? Um, Deloche, Deloche. Deloche. Yeah, BJ yeah. <laughs> Barry plays it. Like and the rampant thrown around of the R word back then, like a uh, little little oh, cringy. Yeah. Deloche feels like. He's dressed like some bizarrely like off kilter like new wave like fat teen crime boss. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that makes I expected him to come back like the first time I watched this. I was just like, okay, he's gonna figure out more to this. Like, no, nope, yeah, no, nope, he's, he's not. He's just got such a very fucking weird wardrobe and. Yeah, he's a, he's a funny character too, and it's it is very funny when Mister Fenster comes in and he's like, you know, gets kind of pushy with Deloach, and he's like, "What's wrong with you? Look at the size of him!" And he tries to talk back to him, and he just fucking smacks Seth Green right over. The kid who was the one being like bullied and stuff, <laughs> right? Smacks that kid, and then is just like, "Get the hell out of here!" You know, and like he gets mouthy with Deloach instead, <laughs> instead of hitting him, but. That whole exchange to the funniest part of that whole sequence after that is is probably my favorite differed moment. Is this when he walks in and he's like, oh, Mr. Finster, you look rested. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's such a just because Difford's such a snide, cunty businessman. Well, that's a character that he's playing, too. Yeah. I, I love the part that leads right up to this when the. Uh... Deloach says, ah, fuck arcades. It's like, well, dude, you're at an arcade, but then... About arcade. I love it. <laughs> Try saying that to my face. And it's just like, oh, I think motherfucker heard you. <laughs> and it's like, and you know, that's, that is like an obvious sign of sentient AI <laughs> for <laughs> 90, technically 91 standards. And, uh, you know, Fenster is just or not Fenster, uh, Difford is just so indifferent to it, because he's just like, pretty scary, and he just, like, rolls his eyes. It's fun. Yeah, John Delancey is different. He, he, the note I have here about him is he, he understood the assignment. He knew what he was it's, supposed to do. Yeah, because the look on his face almost says, like, I hate my job. 
I hate kids. Like, let's get this over with. It either says that or it's screaming like, get the paycheck, get the paycheck, get the paycheck. <laughs> that might have been the reshoots. You can, you can say that as is like Difford getting the paycheck or John Delancey being like, I'm getting a paycheck. <laughs> I'm getting a paycheck. So <laughs> Yeah, because he ain't about to play that game. He ain't about to get in there to play that. But I I've love heard, I've heard not not necessarily from people from this movie, but I've heard he's not. Uh, I've heard stories about him not being pleasant to be around on a set. I don't know if there's truth or validity to that, though. So could be, could be, or could just been having a bad day. We've all had bad days, you know. <clears throat> That's true. But I, I love, you know, I know we've been jumping around here a little bit, but I do want to talk about when they go to play the arcade, the, the arcade, you know, the simulator at the beginning. Nick is a little too cocky for his own good. Peter Billingsley is, you know, he gets in there and he's just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this is really supposed to be, you know, uh, state of the art. And then John Delancey is just like, hey, first one's on me. Almost like a dealer giving him his first hit. He's like, I'll give you a quarter. Here you go. Play. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I love the fact that it has an, uh, an escape button for you to turn the game off or rather quote-unquote eject in case things you know tend uh i think the term that different uses is in, t- in case things escalate it's like okay, message get a little <laughs> squirrely in there yeah 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 you know it's just like i'm like oh so he even says you know the age-old question which has been posed in many video game movies especially horror video game movies like this or or brain scan or lawnmower man he's like so if i die in here is it for real or not and my answer is Yes, it will be for real if you die in there. Because if we didn't, wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> or kind of real, kind of real. It's um one of those situations where it's like they kind of take take it back. So <laughs> but that's kind of like what this movie does is, is it gives you one thing and then it 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 takes it back, which I'm not a fan of. But I've noticed a couple movies, you know, not just this one that I really dig. And Brain Scan does that too, to a degree. It kind of takes. Yeah, and I kind of like Brain Scan as well. Oh, I, dude, I love Brain Scan too. I don't love it as much as this movie, but dude, I'm all about Brain Scan. I have this weird fascination with killer video game horror like video game horror movies yeah <laughs> brain scan is another one much like this that i wanted to see more of but and you know it's i can point out you know there is a weird john delancey had a strange trend with this topic in his career because he played differed in this he would go on to be in evolver yeah he was the i think he was the guy who was developing the military program that they end up taking and harvesting into the Evolver uh, video game uh, three-dimensional robot model that ends up going crazy and killing people, which was voiced by William H. Macy. Um, And then he would later go on to be the guy who was the head of the program, having inmates combat situations via video game style uh, headset play. Uh, in the movie Gamer with Gerard Butler. So he was in three movies where he was. Oh, I, you know, I had forgotten he was in uh, Gamer. I haven't seen that. That's three. another one I haven't seen that in here. 
figurehead behind bad video gaming. <laughs> it's sort of a weird thing to to be the guy to go to for. So yeah, I was going to say it's a weird thing to to, to be uh, that kind of a character actor, but yeah. you know, it, hey, yeah. it pays the bills. Yep, but yeah, this this movie, yeah, it you back to the main point though, you would technically die if you were to uh, die by the game. It would be really awkward if at that point if Nick had not hit the escape button and he died right there in the game and then he like got absorbed into the game in front of everyone. Right, right. The whole situation for a loop. He, he would have <laughs> had to you know what he had to he would have had to have done. He would have had to kiss reality goodbye. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> reality <laughs> Which I love that line. Kiss reality yeah. goodbye. Yeah. So uh, but thankfully, he hit the escape button and got out in time. So yeah. just in time for Greg to ask for permission to play next. Yeah, and then like like Delancey, you know, different, uh, you know, segues into, hey, let me give you, a, I got an offer that you're not going to be able to refuse. You know, weird to kind of sideways quote the Godfather movies. But he's like, I'm going to give you, uh, you know, Arcade the Home version. Oh, for free? Not nah, like that. That ain't fucking sketchy. Yeah. You can tell, like, he's trying to get everybody away from the game room when, yeah. when Greg gets behind there. And, of course, what happens? Greg gets absorbed, and he yeah. he, he dies in, what is level yeah, one called? The Quarters of Doom? Yeah, there's some, there's some moments where you have to kind of, or at least I do, I kind of question Difford's involvement. Like, how much does he know? You know what I mean? Because... Later on, Albert clearly knows that things aren't one hundred percent like on the up and up. Yeah, so does, does Difford know too? So it kind of makes you kind of makes you wonder. And I have to point out too. You notice in the scene where he takes them all in for to begin with, <laughs> right before Nick starts to play, like only the basic friend group kind of squeezes their way through the doorway. Everyone else sort of is like looking in through the doorway instead of all actually coming into the room. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was only the the core group, the the core yeah. several people there. Yeah, yeah. I did notice that. And another weird thing I have to point out is, is like when it like shines the light on Nick's face and it's doing the facial recognition uh, thing. That at least that's what we call it nowadays. It, it, he says it's memorizing his features. <laughs> yeah, it's called facial recognition. Yeah. And there's that weird cutaway of Lori being very shook by it. She's like. Heck, like, like she's concerned that something bad is like happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it just kind of made me wonder, like, it's one especially of how much different knew, and how much yeah. like they suspected right off the bat because they all, none, nobody is uh, except maybe you know Nick when he come when he goes in is just like, you know he's all for it, but everybody else is a little hesitant. And you notice a funny thing to point out, too. I, I could point out so many funny things. You notice that when Difford brings them back out while Nick is, or not while Nick, while Greg is playing, um, and he's like, oh, I'll give you these home versions. You just have to promise to fill one of these out and send it in. He has, like, two scientists there with him. Yeah, They're right. Like, yeah, in lab coats lab and coats. shit. Like, legit scientist-looking people with him in tow that weren't there before, but they're like there <laughs> and i'm like what are they what are they doing <laughs> like why are they there were they they're, there, they're like, guarding the home version so nobody would steal them but you figured they'd have security guys not scientists yeah it's it's just another kind of 
odd moment that kind of makes you think for a bit. <laughs> so. She she talks to him right beforehand and she calls him by name and then they all go out. He gets into play and uh, Arcade calls him by name. Ah, uh, well, and also like when she takes the, the game system home and Alex does, the game system turns on and, you know, when she plugs it in and automatically already knows her name, which is, yes, is kind of like big her. time. So he's he is he is very sentient and he he is listening at all times. Yep. Uh, but you know who isn't listening? Alex's dad. Alex's dad is pretty useless. He's in, <clears throat> what, maybe one scene in this movie? I think, uh, if I remember right, just the one scene where he's drunk on the couch and she's just like, oh, dad, you need to go to sleep. And he's like, yeah, okay, honey. And just like nods right yeah, back off like, on the couch. Yeah. I think he literally, he responds to her like twice, I think. And it's literally like one word responses. Right. Like, which is so tired uh, physically, and I'm going to presume emotionally because he just is just, he doesn't even want to get up and do anything. Yeah. But uh, when Alex goes upstairs and she puts that home version to good use, but the arcade system itself comes off some, some important information really pretty soon. Starts from talking. And this is when I kind of made the point where in my notes to say that Arcade is quite the shit talker. Like, <laughs> totally this, like, talking trash the, the whole time to Alex, taunting her. And yes. I, I'm kind of all about it. I kind of like that. He's got a very dominant <laughs> personality. Yeah. Kind of acts like he has a god complex to a degree, so... <laughs> Well, he does <laughs> because he, he's like he's like Alec Baldwin in Malice. If you've ever seen that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Uh, uh, look when she when she takes she kind of realizes okay, it's like twelve thirty, and I've been playing this game for five minutes, but it's been several hours. Yep. And she goes to Greg's house, not Greg's house, uh, Nick's which, house, which I have to point out is a moment of almost a situation where it was almost potential mind control where he's just consumed her brain and made her lose track of time to the point where she just lost the entire day. Right. Right. And I love uh, when she gets to, when she gets to Nick's house, he's in the same boat as her. Like he, mm -hmm. he is just transfixed. He can't hear her at the window. He can't hear her come in through his bedroom window. She's standing right next to him. And like, she has to like, pretty much bump him physically to get him to realize what's, you know, that she's there. Mm -hmm. And, and what I, is, and what is, what is consuming his attention? Static. Not static. Uh, it wasn't the static. It was that, um, oh, what the it's hell like a, was it? He says, it, he says it's a fractal. Yeah. A fractal image. Yeah. A fractal, but it's beating like a heart. And I've never really understood what a fractal is. I, I have looked it up numerous times to try and, wrap my brain around it <laughs> or why why a, a fractal would appear in a situation like that and i just have to literally interject i i have it pulled up here too and the funny thing is is when you see his screen and you see that that image kind of burned into his screen mm -hmm. the bubble right, right. sort of image you know what i'm talking about yeah 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 
when I look the word fractal up on search, that is one of the top two images that pops up. Is that I, I mean I I'm I doubt it came straight from the movie, but maybe the movie used a popular image, but that is the first image that popped up. It says a fractal is a never-ending pattern. Fractals are infinitely complex patterns that are self-similar across different scales. They are created by repeating a simple process over and over in an ongoing feedback loop. Driven by the recursion, fractals are images of dynamic systems, the pictures of chaos. Okay, I, <laughs> I, I understood about mind. half of that. <laughs> yeah, you blew so, my mind because I think I understood about half of that. Same. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of uh, probably mathematics and things that go into that. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, math was I, never one of my strong suits. <laughs> I, <laughs> never. I was always um, middling in math, <laughs> but um, I didn't suck at it. But I wasn't great at it. But uh, I think the in the scope of things, like perhaps the fractal is something that appears. Uh, in in the program as a distraction, perhaps because he was, was it was working on him. He's yeah, he was very wrapped up in it, and it and like you said, it was beating like a heart. So it's it's like it's alive because in a way the the program is alive. So well, it was played off differently because um, it was Lori that they find at the house where she's staring at the screen and she's saying that she sees angels. Don't you see them? Yeah. The angels, they're beautiful. But she's staring at a screen full of static. Yes. <laughs> which, which is like, I think she was much further gone. Well, I don't think I knew. No, she was much further gone than Nick was when Alex found him. Yes. But we also get to this point here. We don't know, like, what happens if the escape button doesn't work. Uh, the escape button doesn't work. And she has, this is the point where I actually kind of was torn between whether or not Nick was a good friend or a shit friend. Because, like, at first, he doesn't believe her. Like, yeah. he's not a very good friend until, like, well, he's not a good friend until he is. You know, yeah. he, he takes a while to warm up to it. He, you know, he's, he's accusing Alex of being paranoid because she, you know, she is troubled by the death of her mother and everything. Yeah. But it doesn't take him long to come around to the fact to know that, yes, the game is alive. And, you know, <laughs> I have, like, a, in parentheses in my notes, like, oh, the game's alive. The hell you say? Like, Yeah, he... He is very disbelieving at first, and he he is maybe the one of the bunch that might have a bit more of a coarse attitude at points. Um, but it's very short-lived. He comes around and becomes, like, you know, fully immersed in the plan to take yeah. Arcade down once they all come to the, you know, to the assumption or to yeah. the assertion that it's, everybody is in trouble. It's strange, because I think that he is... <sighs> I feel like there's so much that can be said about a lot of these characters. I really do. Like, I feel like Nick is someone who is just very, he wants to go with the flow. He doesn't want drama. He wants to, he even says it at one point, like the silliest line probably in the whole movie is like, life's too short, you know? Like, <laughs> he just, like, he just wants to roll with things. He doesn't want to shake shit up or be problematic. He just, he doesn't want to, cause problems but he doesn't want to be bothered either and at, at the root of it too like he has this weird i think internal conflict too because he has eyes for alex yeah he, he even says at the end you know for, 
and he can't have her. He can't have her. And she blatantly, she, she hears it. She doesn't shoot him down, but she doesn't acknowledge it directly. Yeah, because he says somebody like, I care about you. He's like, I got feelings for you, you know, and I don't want to see you get hurt. And she's like, yeah, it's tough being a hero, isn't it? And like, a hero. Yeah, like, and, and you know, it's that those are it's a silly response, but those are choices, you know? Like, she, I think Alex cares enough that she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to diss him, you know? I don't think that's right. the kind of person she is. Uh, no, no. She seems like a genuine person else. who you know, she doesn't want to cause someone else grief. If if he has real feelings for her, I don't think she wants to shit on him, you know. But her her feelings are for someone else. So yeah, and I like so the I, fact that they never really go there with him, like trying to like say actively seduce her or anything. Yeah, in many other movies that would have happened. Yeah, it's something that I think if you take if you take a lot of that into consideration, it plays into a lot of for me the, the way that he acts. Truthfully, you know, I I think it says a lot about his character. Same as I think if you look at someone like Laurie, I think that Laurie comes off too like someone who probably has she's very introverted, mm-hmm. probably has emotional problems. You know what I mean? She's always very quiet, very huddled down. You know. Right, right. And withdrawn <clears throat> acting, whereas Stoltz is very over the top and he needs attention. Like when they first show up to the the little wall where they all hang out before school, I mean, there's that awkward moment where he like goes over and has this weird look on his face and he like grabs Alex by the hand and like with both hands and he like walks her over. And then when they get to the wall, he kind of like makes his face and like lets her hands go and looks over at Nick or at uh, Greg like, Okay, that's awkward, you know. <laughs> right. And it he was, even has that moment awkward. too where he, you know, in thirty days later or thirty years later standards where you look at him and you know, him and Nick are talking at that one point at the midpoint of the movie where it's like, Yeah, you know, I yeah, I took that girl so and so out on a date and I'm like, Oh, did you grab her boobs or something? And he's like, Yeah, I grabbed her boobs and she punched me in like, the oh, face. Oh, you grab him and you go you grab him and you go boop <laughs> like <laughs> He's like, yeah, I grabbed him. She, she says, like, she she punched him in the head or something, you know. Right, so right. Like, you know, he's like, you know, he's likable and silly, but you know, the '90s were a different time, and you know, I think people laughed more at you know grabbing a girl's boobs. But uh, very playful character. Whereas then you look at Ben's, and then you have someone who I feel like was probably like the drug addict of the bunch. Yeah, they did. he was the one that just wasn't, he wasn't very well developed. He feels very stoned the entire time. Right, right. He has a very, uh, I'm half here sort of mentality. And even when he speaks, there's just a, there's a certain tone and slow pace to to the way he, he dictates his speech. You know what? Maybe he was Jimbo Leary's kid. <laughs> you know, could have been, could have been Full multiverse. That is exactly what he was. <laughs> so, uh, like, yeah, so like I, uh, like I said, I I can go off on all kinds of different tangents with this movie. This chat can go on. Here, here's hours. a tangent for you: they kill Arcade kills Lori with a strobe light, with right before <laughs> things 
go all poltergeisty until Nick smashes the TV with the with the clothes with the coat rack. Like when they show up at Lori's house, she is fucked up. I mean, complete full blown wackaloon. Yeah, she's just, just like she's not even wearing the headset or anything. I don't think was she. She's just literally tranced just, out, like staring at the screen and stuff. And I see what you did there. Static. And you know he's talking to her and talk then talking to them and it's a moment too where it's very uh, pointed to say that you know when they show up and you know they break in and it's funny because the first they arrive and he's like wait here she's like no way like, no, no way I'm not gonna wait outside here. you know and uh, she waits and, or she goes inside with them and uh, arcade knows what Nick is thinking because he says you could leave here you know yeah it's like you could have her all you could leave Nick or, or leave uh, Greg here and you can have Alex all to yourself and he's like change the channel <laughs> like it's like yeah. it's awkward because Arcade's calling me out because Arcade knew because I think Arcade had levels of telepathy where he can read people's minds and things. And it's ex- part of that facial recognition too, you know, that yeah, and, I'll, and I'll point it out later. There's another very significant moment, I think, uh, where arcade expresses, uh, telepathic abilities, but like he reads Nick's mind and calls him out on that. And, and that's when he has to <laughs> smash the TV, but then, yeah, you get the, the strobe effect with the really odd, like bright, but dark lights coming out of the TV set. Yeah, as I called it, just death by strobe light. Anybody Mm -hmm. with epilepsy should probably not watch this scene, I'm sure. Oh, God. They would be in a hospital after this? Yeah, oh, after this movie entirely, they would be. (laughs) But where our heroes go from here, they go on to Vertigo, was it called Vertigo Tronics, right? Tronics, yep. Yep. I think it's funny that they threaten their way in the door with like, or like I shouldn't say they threaten their threaten their way in through the door because it's it's strictly Nick doing most of the talking. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> and is it me? Do you or was that picture on the wall that above the waiting area supposed to look like Nick? There they, are there are pictures hanging in the Vertigotronics office that look like they are the. F- Facial that that shot you're talking about looks like a facial recognition scan that we see on the monitor. Right, right. So yes, I think that those are that is what that is. Because they even like both look over their shoulders at it for a hot second and kind of look at each other like mm, that's peculiar. Mm-hmm. They don't really say anything. But what I like is that he threatens the 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 intern or the the the, the secretary mm-hmm. or whatever that's a very out there. creepy receptionist dude. Like, how is he not your acting MVP? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know because Norbert Weiser is just so fucking awesome. Like it's he's such a bizarre caricature of a human being to me. (laughs) Yeah, I expected him to be like one of the like uh, androids from Halloween Three or something. No, totally. I I was gonna say he he doesn't feel human. He he really doesn't to me. Like I feel like he feels like some kind of artificial life to me like he doesn't feel like a real human being like oh he doesn't totally i've I've, I've thought that for years he doesn't feel like a real person 
Like, he feels like something that they made in the lab by one of those scientists. Yeah, in my own head, in my own backstory, that he was something they created. Like, yeah. if they would have made a sequel, he would have come back. Yeah. Where he's like, he finally gets in the 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 meeting, and he's like, have a seat. <laughs> but, I love, but he threatens in the way with, like, you know, we're going to tell them that, you know, your, your game is possessing people. Basically threaten them with, like, the all allegations of satanic panic type stuff. Yeah. Which yeah. was, you know about 10 years too late for the time, but like it fits, yes. it totally fits. I think, I think at that point, we yeah, the... we were kind of at the tail end of the, uh, the talk show era <laughs> where you had, you know, like people like that being on talk shows and being like, yeah, I'm a Satanist. I worship the devil and stuff, you know? Yeah. It felt like a very Sally, Jesse Raphael. Totally. I mean, I remember like people like her and like Geraldo and shit would have like the dumbest show plots you know where they'd have people like that on that were just like i'm a devil worshiper or they'd have people on be like you know a, a bunch of gay kids and they're like well what makes you think you're gay or like you know like the club kids or something stupid like that. what is it what is it about the club scene that just attracts you But yeah, I mean, that, things that from the eighties and nineties that I don't miss. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, but a lot of those kinds of things were really popular at the time, and I I think they were at when this movie finally came out. Though yeah, a lot of that, especially like the satanic panic and that kind of stuff, was really just sort of like on the down the down turn. <laughs> like it was on yeah, the dick. They had new like, things to be scared really of, you know, a topic anymore. But you know, as Nick says, gets them every time. Gets them every time. But it gets him in to meet uh, Difford, who quickly shuffles them off in his second and only uh, scene, other scene besides the opening, and he shuffles them off to Albert, played by Norbert oh, Weiser. But I have to, I have to interject though too. He has that one brief moment beforehand where he meets, he has that brief interaction with a coworker. Oh, that's right. That's right. Who I believe, who I believe is uh, Watches, is his name. I believe, and he, I can't it, remember. He it's never said, but uh, he's like, uh, oh, her heads are gonna roll if Arcade doesn't penetrate. <laughs> oh, that's right, the guy, yeah, and he just kind of goes, yeah, asshole. Just like, <laughs> okay, I do remember that. I do remember that part. No, like, yeah, Difford does not want to have any of it. He doesn't want to even talk to the dude or acknowledge the the fact that like he'll lose his job if this game isn't a hit. So, so <laughs> yeah, except with him, failure is not an option. No, definitely not. But, but there's my MVP. It's still Norbert Weiser. I I can't, I can't think of anybody else in this movie I, I like any better. Because and how like, do they and how do they get in though? Too, I have to point this out because they're like, yeah, man, you don't want us going around to school telling everyone your game's too hard, do you? And he's like, oh no, no. I'm like, wouldn't that be like a, it'd be like a selling point, wouldn't it? That's right. Like it's, yeah, it's the total reverse of what you wouldn't want them going in saying your game's too easy. Because <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want, want you wouldn't want either. I yeah, don't you, think. You, but, but it's like if it's too hard, that's I mean, then that's a challenge. You can try and you know. No, nothing worse than a game that you can go in and beat in thirty minutes because then you spent your forty to sixty dollars. And that's how I get like you know the Super Mario games where I could just like I could slay them games in like thirty minutes. I'd go from beginning to end, just like boom, 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 and I was done. It was a weird flex. It was a weird, yeah. weird flex so at like that point. Getting him to help them. 
but then he's <laughs> more than happy to just like push them off on Albert instead. But Albert, uh, the Albert character, he he's so interesting because it's like he knows that they've done something wrong. I think he knows that he, they've created something evil, but he is readily willing, ready and willing to give them all the information they li- li- need. Yep. He shows them the schematics and everything. He gives them all the intel they need. Tells them, you know, you got seven levels. Each has an exit and a key, but the doors aren't always, you know, air quotes here that you can't see. The doors aren't always what they seem. But yep. you have to unlock Arcade's heart in order to escape his brain to win, which yep. seems strange. <laughs> Very complicated. Very unnecessarily complicated. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it seems like a Tomb, Tomb Raider game, just too hard to beat. Yep. But, uh, which, which at point two, like they, you know, he's there. He's explaining all that, and you can tell, like Nick is just like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> he's looking like, at everything like wide-eyed, like, uh, "Yeah." And he knows, like, he just like they know, and he's just like, "What are you not telling us?" And then that's when Albert's just like, "Yeah, we did this, and we used the dead kid's brain cells." Right, right. He that's just like, part, what just, just drops, like, he drops the bomb. Yeah, like, that they use a real donor brain, real donor kid's brain. It was only I, I made a quotes in this with exclamation points. Oh, it was only a few hundred thousand brain cells. It was nothing unethical. And I'm like, nothing unethical. Not like that unethical. all sounds <laughs> that just, all sounds unethical. Yeah, you just used a human brain to like give like uh, sentient life to artificial intelligence and like set it loose, <laughs> right? Publicly, <laughs> like, like. With the power to absorb people's souls and um, right, to, to be ethical going on here. Yeah, to be noted that they they not only used you know brain matter, but they used it from a child abuse victim, from a kid who was beaten to death by their parent. Oh, so no, that part also, at the end, which is also very dark shit for a full moon movie. Yeah, a kid beaten to death by his mother. I uh, like. I wrote down the line here. And that, went to sleep forever. Yeah. Vertigotronics stole his pain and I was born. Right. Mommy hit me until I went to sleep forever. I wrote that down. That was so fucking sad. Like Demented sounding. Now I have that, to make a point here that that kid was played by Humberto Ortiz. The same kid who played Kevin from Dollman. So they cool. used the same kid in both movies. Yep. I mean, he and, was on the set, so. Yeah, but... <laughs> Believe it or not, I probably have seen this movie probably at least a good dozen times over the years. Probably watched it, you know, this is the first time I've watched it in two or three years. But it's the first time that I noticed that it was the same kid that played Kevin. I just never put those two and two together before. And I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that kid, maybe that kid did other stuff. I'm not familiar with him literally from anything else other than his two full moon movies with Pune. Yeah, that's only two things I know him from. But then again, you know, he might have been in the. Yeah, I looked here. It says he was in 18 things. The last, this was like the third to last thing he did. He was on Where on Earth is Carmen San Diego and the John Larroquette show after Arcade and Dollman. And that was it. He was also in Kickboxer 2. Oh, well, there you go. So he was a kind of pune regular. So. Yeah, yeah. At least he did a trifecta of them. Of you know Norbert Weiser, but he was there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
Oh, man. Well, what do we get next? We says uh, Albert says to them, don't play the game again, but if you're going to, here, take the schematics so you have them with you. So at least this, uh, you know, they leave him with the, the message, and he's like, what if the skate button doesn't work? I think Alex says as she walks out the door. And he's like, well, then we've got ourselves a really large glitz on our hands then, don't we? And that... And that- that concept that she just asks that literally blows his mind. Yeah. Like, look on his face, and he just, like, the hands on the head, he's just like, it, like, he just can't even comprehend it. But he knows there's a problem, because he tells her blatantly, bef- like, before she asks that. He's like, if you want my best advice, don't play this game. And she tells him that's really not an option at this point. So, no, But it is an option. It is an option. Oh, yeah, uh, it is an option. I'll I'll expound on that more here in in a moment. But I have a question. There's something that yes. was unclear to me or not. That was was unclear to me to whether or not he was was when they came into his office. He was playing the game. Was he playing yes. the arcade game or was he playing a different game? I always took it as him playing arcade and trying to figure out how to beat it. Or like was he just as his, because he seemed very nervous, like he maybe was either hopped up on too much caffeine or he was going through some sort of, you know, like Joneses from playing the game. I, I just couldn't. I, yeah, I, I think it could be a, a healthy mix of all the above. He feels <laughs> like you know, not like on a Jesse Spano type level, but I, he feels like someone who's hopped up on loads of caffeine or speed. Because he's very, <laughs> very jittery and nervous and frantic at points. And at, at that moment when they first enter, he's very, like, unhinged. And I, I always took it as he was playing the game, because he's more than happy to be like, oh, yeah, it's hard to pin that bastard down. He's always changing the rules, you know, because I feel like he was just tussling with this situation. So I think he was almost looking for a way to destroy it, and he thought maybe these kids had the best shot. No, but who knows? Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Maybe that's why he would tr- entrust them with the, the information. You know? Yeah, and give them all that info, all that intel, and give them the schematics before they, you know, skedaddled out the door. Yep. But so they end up going back to the start, what they call the start of the virus. They go back to Dante's Inferno, where they first played the game. And, yep. you know, this is the only point, really only part of the movie that I felt was a little... For a few seconds was a little, little disappointing, and I'm not, not, I'm not knocking it. I'm not because they, they kind of reuse some of those opening world shots over again. They just rehash them. I'm not exactly mad at it for doing so, but it's obvious, like the shots they're using when they're going through that first level of yeah. the game, that it's just rehashing the same shots from when uh, Greg and Nick played it in the beginning. I mean, I'm not mad at it for doing so, but it's kind of glaringly obvious. I- I have to point out, too, that it's like right before they go in there, too, that's the big moment where I think it is that Nick points out how he feels and that, you know. Yeah, before they log log they, into the game. choose to just let it be and not do that. And she is like, you know, it's something that has to be done. And uh, yeah, because he says we could just keep driving. Yeah. And I. I for me, where I'll interject here is is that um, give me give me name a name a final girl for me. Any final girl? Um, 
Jenny from final uh, from Friday too. So in Jenny's situation, did she have a moment where she could have not had to deal with Jason? So you gave me a tricky one because there is. But overall, I think I already know the answer. I would say there really isn't a point where she can not deal with think, Jason. I don't think there is either because she like she's deep in what's going on there. So no matter what. Yeah, but by the time she realizes what's going on, she's already neck deep in it. Yeah, she was get, she was going to have to go and face it no matter what. She could have always decided to be like Ted and stay at the bar and keep drinking because he's the smartest character in any Friday the 13th movie ever made. He decided to stay and get trashed. The only one getting, who actually lives by getting fucked up. Yep, he's he decided to get trashed instead of thrashed. Hey, oh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know. I, I don't think she could have escaped it. So give me another final girl. Um, uh, Nancy Thompson, uh, Nightland, or Nightland, or, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, I mean. Nancy Thompson was the child of parents who murdered Freddie. His primary aim was getting revenge on those parents, at least in the earlier movies, getting revenge on those parents. By taking their children away. So no matter what. She was going to have to face Freddy. Hmm. It's an inescapable situation. My, my point is. I think that Alex Manning. Is a very unique. Character. In horror. In that. She. Has a choice. She has the knowing choice of she could just not play and just leave them all and move on and live. Yeah, but she, yeah, she does. She does ultimately make the choice to dive back into that game yeah. and take them on. Yeah, but she is in a very <clears throat> position. And for me, I've always felt where she does genuinely have the ability to walk away and say, fuck it. And she lived. But she doesn't do that because she knows that even if she is the worst player, she's failing at life. You know what I mean? Life sucks. Her dad yeah. is crazy. Her mother is dead. Like she ha she her life is awful. And she sucks at video games. I know that's the that's the most ironic part of this is that she sucks at video games and she's the one that's like kind of fighting to save everybody. Yeah, and I mean she she has the backup of having the best player, but at the end of the day, I think what what makes her such a strong character for me is is that she's a broken person, but at the end of the day, she knows that walking away is not the choice that she can make. That's well, for not, her, it's not even an option. She know, has to do this because it, she, it's the right thing to do. Even if she knows she has zero chance of succeeding, she basically is willing to put her entire life on the line just on the slightest hope that she can succeed. So I think she's a very unique final girl in that aspect where I think that compared to a lot of other 
most all other final girls, she could just walk away and just <laughs> be done, and she don't have to fucking do anything. Well, like she, said, you even said she could even... peace out of the movie like Ted did in Friday too. Like <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. She could be, you know, she could have done like what Jenny almost did and could have stayed and just partied and drank and maybe lived, you know. No. But well, no, but she. she She's a good person, though. Like at root, she's a she's a good person who has a good heart, and for, which is unique for her as troubled as she is. Yeah, and she she you know, and which not, I I dig that about her character. Yeah, she she can't let Arcade win. You know, it's at root, it's just doing the right thing was more important to her than surviving, even if she knew that she had a. No fucking chance whatsoever of succeeding, but she does somehow. So I think that's why, for me, she's one of my absolute favorite final girls, because she could have lived, you know, and just moved on. I mean, this will sound pretty flippant, but, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends sometimes come and go a lot, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. And I found a new boyfriend, you know? But uh, she could have just left with Nick. Like she said, she blatantly says, Nick's all I have now. So, you yeah. Know. Or Greg is all I have now. Nick right. wishes is all she had. <laughs> yeah, but, Nick uh, wishes. But, uh, but she she goes in anyway, you know. So I like uh, the fact that at the beginning they go into the game together before, before Albert shows up and, like, kind of brings, you know, Nick out his interference, you know, and leaves Alex on her own. But they at least went in together. They, they you know, they neither one of them yes. was going to let the let the other go in alone. Yes. And I and also I, took note there. Would you, some of these locations look like they were the same uh, off world yes. locations from Dollman and Nemesis. And they are. They totally yeah. are. It's the, oh yeah, the, totally. It's the exact same locations. It, like in level two is what you're referring to, correct? Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, what's funny is, is Albert says, oh, after you get, you know, to level five, it's, you know, you're inside Arcade's brain and it's, you know, very ugly, a lot, a lot of concrete and steel. And it's like eh, very urban, I think he says. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Level two looks more urban than any of <laughs> than level any five. Of like when you get to level five, it looks very utopian. Like, yeah, again, I know it, it reminded yeah. the. It reminded the people from uh, Disney that it was Tron, but it also reminded me of Tron still, you know. Yeah. But uh, what did they say? This, uh, they said the Screamers, you can't beat them. You can only outrun them. You can only escape them. Yep, you cannot defeat them. You can only escape. That is it. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the Screamer looks great. It's like a large metallic, like flying skeletal dragon. Yeah, it looks almost like a cross between like a a chrome plated deadite from like a flying deadite from Army of Darkness. Yep, yep, yeah, it's cool looking. And you and you only get kind of teased with the screamer at points earlier and and like when Greg first gets taken, but uh, it really comes to life once they get to level two when when Nick gets again distracted by a fractal. <laughs> But Nick, uh, at one point, I kind of put it like Nick gets taken out like 
sort of like a little bitch because he like just gets he gets distracted but you know then you realize he's really not dead you know really yeah. quickly because it was Alex that not Alex but um Albert that you know kind of brought him out yep i think he would have if he hadn't i think it's a situation where if Albert hadn't intercepted the the game board he would have been dead anyway oh yeah because he got tagged by one of the screamers just barely and it like lacerated his back it yeah, got him with been, the... just been clawed right before going through the doorway into yeah into level two so but, i don't uh, think he would have lived long if if albert hadn't stepped in so oh no no literally on a seven level game and the best player there is only made it to level two so oh, right he's not that good after all so and you see how how good Stilts and Lori words because they end up like ghosts at the gate, kind of like th- it was reminiscent when they both popped up, like they were at the the entrance way of the River Sticks, but they yep. were kind of like the gatekeepers from um, you know the flick Labyrinth, right? Yep, yep, yeah. That this were like yep. one of us is always telling the truth, one of us is always yep. lying. Uh, I, there's, I like the instances where they utilize the human characters like with with ben's in the pool drowning and right right space in the pool and realizes that the the doorway is going into the the water but then in level three yeah with with the the liars paradox wait and what was the level three called sea of darkness i think it was it says sea of darkness i believe i don't remember the exact levels but I think on screen they say level three Sea of Darkness, but I believe that is actually level four. If you look at the schematics, I think there was another name for the ah uh, okay the liars paradox happens. But it's some of them are almost kind of like because you know you're in a eighty minute movie, they they have to kind of be non levels. There's not a lot that can <laughs> coerce. And well, once they get into the game, this final part, they kind of fly through the levels pretty quick. They do, they do, because I mean, they just, you know, they get through level one pretty quickly. Level two is pretty, pretty quick, too. She just kind of, you know, goes through the doll man set and jumps in a puddle, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then her logic of getting to the City of Truth is not very solid, I'd have to say, yeah. but it works. It still works. It does. And it, it's an interesting use of stilts and Lori as the as the boat, the boatman. You know, and I kind of like the fact that we got at least a little bit more of Seth Green as stilts because I liked his character a lot. Yeah. So, but and uh, it's and it's a and it's a much more sort of darker representation of the two of them too. And that's a sequence too where there were cut scene a cut scene where Lori attacks Alex and tries to stab her with like a neon knife. Um, it doesn't really fit. <laughs> so. When Alex gets uh, Lori to take her across the, you know, uh, the sea of darkness, or the, the sea, she has to like, so what happened to you, Lori? And didn't she just say, I lost? Yeah, I lost. Yeah, yeah that was that's, it. That was it. That was it. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> as simple as that. So, <laughs> pretty pretty cut and dried. Want, but it's, it's the only answer you need. Sadly. Right, right. That's, so. all you need, that's all you need to know, right? <laughs> basically, so if you, it's basically the preface of, you know, don't fucking lose, or this is <laughs> this is gonna be your existence. So, 
but she gets a free life, Alex does, by, by obtaining and saving, a, I'm using air quotes here again that you can't see, a new player. Which, which, if you remember, Albert does state, he's like, if you're lucky enough to cross the Sea of Darkness, you can acquire a free life at this point. And that, that would be um, crucial to surviving once you're inside Arcade's brain. So, yeah, because yeah. level four City of Truth is a very short level, uh, definitely, because he, she gets the little boy in there. And she's like, she, she becomes very... You know, mother-like at that point, she's like, don't yeah. worry, you're going to be fine, I won't let anything happen to you. And then we get through level four, the City of Truth, short level, like, for sure. Level five, the Sky Cycle Chase, which is what gave him the most trouble with the, the, the Disney execs, which is, I mean, obvious what they were trying to emulate. But I, I'm, again, I'm not mad at it, even though, the like, I think the Dark Riders look freaking cool, and, but, okay. again... One of they the look, only they look incredible. One of the only things that I, I consider a slight disappointment with this movie is the fact that they just didn't give us more of them. One of my favorite CGI shots in the movie is is when the one uh, Dark Rider actually crashes and shatters into all of the the fragments that come like shooting out at the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. That's, uh, I, I think like that, that shot's well. incredible. But uh, with level five, I forgot the name of, but level six is called Arcade's Inner Sanctum. And that's when you find out that that goddamn kid was who all along? Arcade. Snap. It, the little kid is Arcade the entire time, so little Kevin from the Doll Man is actually a fucking villain. Like, it's so cruel when she has the false wake up Alex does when you when it all of a sudden kind of you think that she's just waking up in the real world but it's like never for a second even the first time I saw this did I ever think that that was the real world you have you have that moment where you feel like it's going to be like like slumber party massacre 2 or something there was like that trope in the 80s where you know characters would wake up and it's like the whole movie was a fucking dream where right. And that, that that phrase I'm not gonna say where they kind of like take the whole movie back and it doesn't exist anymore. And it's like right, okay, right. well, that was. But uh, but yeah, she does that thing where she gets she has the the she has to like put the key in the junction box to unlock it and kind of gets electrocuted and then it's like that quote unquote wakes her up in the yep. real world again and that that great like triple take shot from different angles of her uh, waking up. I love shots like that when they're bed. done. Yeah, right. I, I love that because it, it gives a, a dis, you know, a, a very jarring. Yeah. It's very uh, um, disorienting. Yeah. So, which but, works for what comes after it. Oh so. God, because I want to scream. I want to scream. Every time I watch this movie, I want to scream at Alice. It's like, it's a trick. Damn it. Like, you know, her mom's there making breakfast, and she's being all nice and sweet. And when her, when Alice goes to, to hug her, and she's like, oh, you know, I thought you were dead. You know, you had died. And she's like, oh, but sweetheart, I am dead. Watch. And then blam, blows her brains out right when, in front of her. If she were paying attention, and I think maybe maybe she was, but maybe she was so sort of, you know, taken sure aback. Yeah, she had to be very jarring. Of where she was and what was happening. 
but he tells her blatantly what's what's going to happen. He tells her right right as she's being electrocuted, he says, find my soul in your hell and die with it. Yep, and that's about what she does. So. But, I mean, because uh, I think it's so, I mean, when she's like, I am dead, sweetheart, watch. D- d- shoots herself and then it's like, oh, but I'll take you with me. So you can never let me down again. Then puts a gun to her own daughter's head, blows her brains out. But there's a trick that even Arcade couldn't fucking uh, anticipate because her soul gets restored because because what? Free life, bitches. <laughs> he forgot about the free life that he granted her by saving his human form. Yep, because he gets pissed off. I love how he's like, <laughs> when Arcade just starts screaming, and he's all like, you know, I played by the rules. And but it's you like, forgot yep, you forgot one of your life. own damn rules. <laughs> yep. Uh, but souls are restored. Everybody is back. And notice and how I just have to say it's a very simple defeat. Yeah, just it does seem very simple. The, you know, I don't know what that was. You know, it looks like a large battery with cords coming out of it. <laughs> I think it was supposed to be his heart. And Because it kind of looked like a heart. Yeah, and he just explodes. And she has, like, really incredible hair when she comes back into his inter sanctum, I have to point out. Yeah, it's it's very uh very froofy and frizzy. It's a very styled feeling. It feels like there's there's that there's like this one sh- brief shot in uh, the first Elm Street where Nancy's been like very underslept <laughs> and she's like <laughs> drinking the coffee and stuff. And it's like there's this one shot, dude, and it's like she's been you know had a rough night, and dude, her hair looks incredible. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, like hey, like honey, who's your stylist? You know. Yeah, like she just got it did at the salon or something. It's like that's what Alex's hair looks like. It's just great, like it's got like great volume. <laughs> you know, is that like but, is that Aquanet? Did you use Aquanet? Yeah, but it's just like you know, yeah, you got to look good when you when you make the make the, your final move. You know, make your final stand and defeat the bad guy with what ends up being a very sort of uh, simple and anticlimactic uh, move, basically by throwing that at him, and it literally just defeats him and blows him up yep yep and then he has to release all the players so when she wakes up out of the game everybody is just magically restored which is funny because she says you know like everyone that had been at dante's disappeared and got absorbed i i find it fascinating that she knew all those people's numbers (laughs) (laughs) including like and all those people you know they all vanished like even you know she says that even Deloach's number was disconnected. Like, why do their numbers get disconnected when Arcade absorbs them, too? He has, like, some kind of hold on the phone company, too. Well, he had a hold on that electrical cord because she kept trying to pull it from the wall when she was originally playing (laughs) the game. And Maybe he's in the, the, like, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. He's, like, in the system as far as that kind of, like, a Horace Pinker, maybe. Ah, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But uh, but all the souls get restored. But you know the only ones we see right there are are, are her friend group. <laughs> yeah, just a little cl- close core group of friends. You know the yep. core five or four or five or whatever. Yeah, but, but uh, like, like six of them. The six of them. Yep. But uh, I love. Well, she's like everybody's saved. They released all the players, so it's kind of a happy day. Everybody's saved, but really, are they? Because she actually says something. She's like. 
what if Farquay got out too? But yeah, you kind of get that with that bumper ending, yeah. where where she's like, and you could tell it's leading up to it because this is like the point of view shot of her walking up to the house. You know, it's in the dark. She's all alone. You know, the music's getting very ominous. Everything's slowing down. And it's just like, you know, what if Arcade got out too? And it's like, where are you? She kind of has that moment where she stops and she's remembering all of these things that have happened. And she remembers in her mind where she screams at him and she's like, damn it, where are you? And he says, right here. And it's... he's there. And it's, yep. again, it's it's the telepathy. Yep. Where he's he's been with her, and he's there. He hears her mind and answers her. You know, right here, bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What it changes, and I have to say, that's the one part of the movie I hate. It's really just it's that... one of my absolute all-time favorite cliffhanger endings in a horror film. Ever. It's just the line. Uh, that I don't like. It's not so much yeah. the ending shot as this, like when he's in the little boy's voice right here, and then it changes. It goes, bitch. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I don't like it. Yeah. I just don't. I just don't like. I mean, I love the shot if they had just either done it with all in Arcade's voice or all in the little boy's voice. But for some reason, when it shifts between the two voices, I can't I think stand it's just it. To give that, <laughs> that it's like, yeah, you set him free, but he's still evil. He's still evil. And it's which is an interesting approach because uh, he tells her he's you know when she's talking to him he's like he needs young souls to keep him warm you know he needs people to play with him you know it's like a it's like a there's nothing more strange or hard to understand than an evil child you know like right. how child how does a child become evil you know what I mean is it is it a learned behavior or can a child just naturally be evil you know i don't know i've seen um, plenty of evil kids i think they can be born evil too i think they can i think they can literally yeah they can literally just be bad apples and be evil um i don't always think necessarily on the level of like the bad seed you know but um i think kids can just be bad and maybe with the situation and you know it's a it's a it, i think it's another dark kind of approach with the story Especially lines like, you know, he needs the young souls to keep him warm, you know, is it's dark. The kid looks so angelic. You know, and so sweet and everything when he smiles at her, and it's just yeah, like he makes he makes the the little adorable smile right after he says it. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not so like like I said so, so much the ending that I didn't like. It was just like the change of voice in mid sentence that was just like oh that mm-hmm. didn't work. It just didn't work for me. But like I I love that bumper ending because it just you know, screamed sequel. But sadly, yeah. this would just be what it is. You know, and and I think it's it's. It does just find as a standalone movie. Would I would love I, to have seen more yeah. chapters, but I think it, it yeah, I would have. But at the same time, you know, like I said, it, it's as it's, it's good as just a standalone movie. Not every movie needs a franchise. Yeah, it's uh, I would have loved for it to be a whole franchise. You know, I wouldn't I don't know if I would have wanted it to be like, a, you know, 
puppet master level like you know <laughs> 14 installments or something you know but yeah you um, don't need a dozen and two dozen installments been nice, but it, but like you said as as much as i would have loved to see the the character arcade and some of these characters come back and be explored more it's not really necessary it's pretty self-contained and uh the ending kind of you know what's gonna happen after that you know he's, like, gonna, he's gonna kill everybody he's out yeah and yeah. that's just you know basically the genie's out of the bottle now so you're fucked yep exactly you opened up pandora's okay. box and now you got to deal with yep. it Oh, hell. Well, let's get it. Let's go ahead and get into our final thoughts and ratings on this. I can probably hazard a guess where your rating is going to come in at, but I won't uh, speak for you. So you know how we do things around here. Uh, Final thoughts and rating on a scale from one to ten. Yeah, you know, this movie is clearly, you know, I'm very, very wrapped up in this movie. It's a very emotional movie for me. Uh, this is a movie I've, I've shown this movie to so many people over the years. This has been like a party movie for me when I had my apartment back in the day and people would come over and hang out and I would be like, yo, you got to watch this movie that full moon made and we would watch. And I've never shown this movie to a single person that disliked it. Everyone I have ever shown this to thought it was just like an entertaining, fascinating view. And, you know, when this movie came out for me. Um, you know, I'm that nerd that knew, like, I I saw the trailers with the original VFX back in, like, 90-ish when they were, 90-91-ish when they were promoting it for its original release, and I was like, oh, fuck, I gotta see this, you know? And then the wait began, and, you know, the wait went on, and it went on, and then when I finally saw it, like, it, it blew my mind, you know? Uh, there was just so much about it and it's like clearly yeah i mean it's not a perfect movie um i don't know if there are any perfect movies you know perfect is a it's not a real thing you know it's, yeah it's and con- it's very subjective what one person subjective. might consider perfect is the other person's trash yeah you know? but there's a lot of things that you know aren't perfect about this movie but it's one of those situations like a popcorn or like the original scream or Gregor Rocky's Nowhere for me, or The Crow, where it's like, it is oh, this yeah. imperfectly perfect movie. It's a perfect storm for me from a from a visual appeal and creative standpoint. I love Alex as a character. Like I said, I think she's one of the greatest, most underappreciated final girls because she puts everything before herself. And Mm -hmm. that says a lot about her. And I think Arcade is a great villain. I think he's fun. I think he's he's got attitude. And he was yeah. He's a great shit talker. Shit talker. Yeah, I love him. Thor, who uh, was the Baker in Pit and the Pendulum, and he was Giorgio Dorsino, the the Castle Freak. So I mean, this this guy. Who was he? Oh, Oh, okay. He was the Castle Freak. The real one, not the not the remake one. <laughs> so, I don't. I don't know. I don't count the remake at all. I was like, has been in like class full moon, and you know, of course, his voice is distorted to a degree, but like the, I think the vocal performance is really powerful. You know, 
the, the her all of Alex's friends really feel like people I would want to be friends with. There's a comfort that this movie gives me. And when it came out, it really struck a chord with me uh, emotionally because there was a lot of things going on at home at the time. You know, there was a lot of uh, familial drama and things that had to be sorted out, you know, uh, without going into a lot of detail. But uh, I really connected with this movie and the plight with Alex and being in a rough situation where it feels like you can't escape and you're stuck and no matter what you do you can try and breathe but you keep smothering you know Mm -hmm. so I really it's kind of like being in quicksand and you know like the more you struggle the the more more trouble you get yeah yeah so I I really mentally connected with Alex's fight that struggle and uh horror is weird because it's something where final girls people like to demonize horror a lot and this is a very light horror movie it's a rated r but it's it's rated r for language specifically because yeah, there, there's very things. little blood and there's very little you know and bitches and that kind of stuff there's there's no literal on-screen violence next to don stark smacking seth green yeah know? at the most you get like oh peter billingsley gets a little scratch on you know on the back yeah and it's like, like you don't even see it happen you just see like the the after the effect yeah the torn like leotard thing he's wearing or whatever you know but uh <laughs> yeah that it, black jumpsuit yeah, yeah yeah but it's like with horror it's like uh Horror really, I think, resonates with people who, especially minorities, you know, uh, people who are singled out and feel like they don't fit in. And the struggle to stand out and not let everything tear you down. Because Final Girls, as much as people want to demonize horror, horror takes, it's usually women, you know, but you see characters like an Alex who have to really stand against every fucking odd and overcome insurmountable shit to survive. And that really strikes a chord with me, especially when this movie came out. And it still does to this day. And I'm just talking about it. I'm sure that you can hear it in my voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this movie i watched it every week literally for months every strategically this movie kept me alive at points no joke like that sounds like a tall statement but it's it's fact this was one of the few things that kept me mentally focused and looking forward and again, you know what? That's that is the power of cinema. The right movie at the right time, it can literally be a perfect storm for anyone. And this movie is that for me. Uh, you did it before, so I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> uh, I can guess. I can guess where you're going with this. Eleven. Well, we'll call that the Spinal Tap. 
rating. Yeah, I there <laughs> is like I said, even the stuff that don't work works for me. Like like I said, this is one of the few things I can pop in and watch, and this will make me feel creative. It inspires me. It helps me focus. It really does, as silly as that sounds. Like it, well, it, it doesn't sound silly. I have movies like that myself. You know, uh, Demons 1 and 2 are probably perfect examples of movies like that that is something I can put on. It'll like, it helps me feel like... Uh, like that finds my center if that makes sense it's it's i have joked with people that it's like you know you hear like these stories of like you know the woman who married like a pirate ghost or something you know have you heard that story yeah 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 i've heard about that stupid shit like that like if i could i i could marry the movie arcade and it would be like my perfect other half (laughs) and i guess that makes sense i'm sure but like this movie in my mind clicks in place like two Legos. It just everything clicks and it's quite beautiful and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, over the years, I've talked a lot with some of the people that did it. Uh, I know for a fact that Albert Pune, uh, unfortunately, obviously he is no longer with us, but I know right. for a fact we even saw the final release version. I don't know oh, he why. Did. No, he he never even saw what this movie uh, became. So oh, I don't know why or what the logic was, or if it's you know the man just did a zillion movies. You know, right, stuff. right. Might have been it. It just was a job. He did it and moved on, and that was that. But I know he never even saw it. You know, which I to me is a very unfortunate thing because I think it's a very you know, there's far more, I think, cinematically significant things that people would argue, you know, and he's one of those people that I think people liked to talk smack about his movies sometimes. And, you know, we didn't know really have a lot of great things to say about Omega Doom, but like I still found it a fun movie, but it's one of those. He's one of those cases where it's like nobody appreciates you until you're dead. Right. And then it yeah. comes up. True artists are. Really, he, it does work out that way sometimes. You know, he was a visionary. He, and I'm like, yeah, he was. And it, it took you 45 years, you know, and 100-ish movies and him dying to realize and accept the fact and say that this man was a fucking auteur and he was the definition of a fucking visionary. And, and he this, was somebody who obviously loved film. Yes, he with obviously loved it with a passion. And it's yeah, this movie might not have had the scope of Sword and the Sorcerer or Nemesis or something like that, you know. But in its own world, I think this movie accomplishes a lot. And, you know, like if I were gonna talk about any Albert Pune movie, this you know, I'm willing to talk about anything, but it's like this is the one that has the most weight to me. Oh, I had no doubt in my mind when I was doing Albert Pune Month that this yeah. was the one that you were going to want to do. I had no doubt. Just most definite. Like, I mean it in the absolute truest 5,000% uh, state that, like, this, I'm talking to you right now because of this movie. If this movie didn't, if this movie got shelved, 
I'd probably be dead. Oh, flat, okay. flat out. Like, this movie kept me looking forward through a lot of shit. And it still does. Well, I knew it was super important to you, but I guess I never knew that it was quite that important. But I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. I'm happy that it's that it exists, if anything, that for, for you to still be around, man. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, you know, obviously things now aren't like they were then. But it's it's still just, you know, just rewatching it before we started this show. It's just as powerful today as it ever was. The, you know, I had some brief interaction with Matt Wagner, who did some of the music for it, the songs, and those songs are powerful. You know, I've talked to Dan Schweiger a lot over the years, and he has he has accomplished a lot in his career, but he likes to kind of talk about how this movie was the 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 big thing because this movie was released because of him you know yeah and, we should try to talk we should try to talk to him on the yeah, show you're heading this movie in post to him and robert burnett and peter billingsley that you know with dan's guidance this movie was able to come out otherwise fullman might have shelved it you know there there have been movies you know i could name one or two that were shot or partially shot and never came out you know oh yeah uh, there's been plenty could have been one of those but because of daniel schweigert's efforts this movie was released and you know sometimes i, I you know he's joked i've heard him joke you know oh you know we figure you know and i think robert has too that you know movies like this you know they come and go and you know they get forgotten but you know it's a case in point where it's like movies can change people's lives and he has said that, you know, it's like, I don't want to quote him, but he said that, you know, my love for this movie and kind of spearheading this movie, you know, and keeping it alive. Because if you know me, especially if you know me online, you know, this is like one of those movies for me, you know, he has mm-hmm. been. Oh, very, yeah, I had no doubt. Been very appreciative of the love and the support that I have given this movie and the life that I try and uh, keep pumping into this movie. Uh, And I will never stop. So, you know, it's something that I think everyone should watch. Maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll hate it. Maybe you'll be indifferent. But, you know, you never know until you try. I think this is anyone, if you're listening to this and you're a Full Moon fan, this is one that is not talked about as much anymore. You know, something from the Paramount era that is kind of just one of those things that's fallen to the wayside and, you know, isn't really discussed or anything anymore. But uh, I yeah, think not people, really, not a lot. People who want to boast about, oh, the Paramount era, because everyone likes to go, like, oh, it's never been as good as the Paramount era. We all know that. Yeah. But you know what? Like, go back to the Paramount era and watch more of that shit, because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get the same amount of love as you know trancers and puppet master and subspecies there are some other really significant films from that that period that deserve a look and i think this is definitely the the top of that list that people should go back and look because i just there's a lot for me there's a lot more depth and content and meaning 
behind what's going on in this movie, then I think a lot of people take it surface value. So it's been my pleasure over the years to introduce this movie to people because it's a, like I said at the beginning, it's watching this movie is a very uh, transformative experience for me. It kind of at points, you know, when you watch a movie and you can just zone in and that is all you see is that movie like you're it's like an out of body experience to a degree like that's what this movie does for me it's an 11 hands down perfect movie without a doubt (laughs) i i I get what you're i do understand where you're coming from and i have movies like this that are like this to me like if there's any one movie that's like that to me with from albert pune's library you know me and we've talked about this before it's nemesis and there's something that that resonates with me with that movie about that I think it was part as the way this movie resonates with you is that that movie is about the loss of humanity, you know, and there's something that, you know, I think, you know, having to deal with like technology and dealing with the, the future and whatnot and, you know, losing bits and pieces of yourself to, to better yourself. It's just kind of like, where does it end and where did, you know, the humanity begin and end? Um, but uh, yeah, I I love this movie. I've always I I love the characters. I lo- love I love Stilts. Stilts is you know by far my my favorite of the of the core group of people. Uh, it was when I first really realized who Norbert Weiser was and took you know uh, notice of him. Uh, mm-hmm. I I love the banter. I love I love a little everything about it. Even for like you know I know I kind of picked on a, a bit of it here and there you know the ending shot with the voice changing and little things like that but i i can't fault it for that you know like you said there, you know there is no such thing as per- perfection perfection is kind of in the eye of the beholder but it's about as good as it gets i can't quite give it a an 11 i'm giving it a nine mm-hmm. but still i i feel like that's fairly high you know, and I, I always talk about this one when it comes to talking about the Paramount era. And, you know, the two that I feel like don't get talked about enough that I, I mention on, I wouldn't say it, I almost said on a daily basis, but like on a regular basis, uh-huh. is this one and Lurking Fear. Was yeah, Lurking Fear is a, a, I appreciate that movie much more now than I did as a, as a child, as a teenager when it came out. Yeah, same, same. For me, I think other ones, like obviously, you know, I think Shrunken Heads is a very underappreciated film, as is Dark Angel, The Ascent. Dark Angel, The Ascent is probably probably one of the more unique fucking full moon movies. It's, and nobody it's mentions it. Has a, it has a lot larger scope than most full moon movies. And it's it's a very ambitious film. And I think it's one that, I don't think gets talked about enough as well. Yeah, it's like when people talk about the, as you put it, you know, the Paramount era. Everybody wants to mention, you know, and I, I, I appreciate the Transfers movies. I appreciate, you know, Subspecies are some of my favorite films of all time. But I, I just want to tell people, like, you know, there's more than just the the franchise regulars that were made in that era. Totally. Yeah. Nobody says that about seed people, though. No. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that being said, I think we'll stick a pin in this one for the night. I really appreciated doing this one with you because the last several shows that I've, I've done that I've recorded in, you know, in the space-time continuum of things were first-time watches for everybody. We did Mean Guns with uh, Lee Russell, and that was a first-time watch for him. I did uh, Cyborg with my buddy Tom Commissar, first-time watch for him, and a couple others that were first-time watches for everybody. So it was different to get to do this movie with you. I knew how much of a fan you were of it. I didn't know how much of a significance it had to you. But I think I've appreciated doing this episode with you more than any other one that we've done in the past. So I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, no, this is, uh, like I said, no, you know, one of the, the few movies we've talked about, two of the more significant films uh, in my life being this and Popcorn. Those are important, important films to me. So, Oh, and we've covered both of them. We have. Yeah. So. Popcorn. Oh, God. You know, I wouldn't have think of, wouldn't have thought about it, but popcorn and arcade wouldn't make one hell of a uh, double feature. Oh yeah, definitely. So if we ever and, do an all night horror movie marathon, we'll have to do those two as the ending double feature. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And and truthfully, you know, kind of following in the in the tone of arcade. You know, if you if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, I guess arcade would probably work well with obviously brain scan too, and. Um, Evolver, if you've ever seen Evolver. Yeah, I've seen Evolver. It's been some years, and to be honest, I remember very little of that movie. Really great movie. It's a like, really great movie. Brain Scan, though, was always a guilty pleasure of mine because that was one of the first date movies that I ever went on. And I remember the date going very well. I'll just say that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I wanted to see Arcade, or, or not Arcade, I wanted to see uh, Brain Scan in the theater, but it was... You know, one of those, like, I think it was produced by a company called Triumph, which was kind yeah. of like a genre arm of uh, Columbia TriStar at the time. And it was not in the theaters for very long. So. No, no, I saw it opening weekend and I'm pretty sure it was gone by the next week. Yeah, I, I had to, you know, I was waiting until it came out on videotape at the time and I rented it like the day it came out. And I took it home and I was like, this is pretty incredible. Like, I have this weird... It's a weird subgenre to have a, a fascination with, but it is definitely a subgenre of horror that I have a weird fascination with is movies about evil video games. And it was definitely a high point in Albert's career because I think this is one of his best films. It's, it's probably, God, I mean, the man had like almost 60 films. It would probably be at least a top five for me. Yeah. I know where it ranks for you. That's number one. So there's no question there. Well, bud, we'll call, stick a pin in this one for the evening. Both of us got to get some sleep. It's getting to the wee hours of the almost AM here. Uh, yeah. Folks at home, you have been listening to us dissect and review a beloved classic Albert Pune movie. We've been talking Arcade from 1993. And as always, folks, thank you very much for listening. Yes, kiss reality goodbye. But folks, don't tune out yet because the show is not quite over. Following in just a few moments, we'll have a special interview with one of the producers and second unit directors of Albert Pune's Arcade, Mr. Daniel Schweiger. Now, please enjoy my one-on-one interview with actor, musician, producer, and Full Moon alumni, Mr. Daniel Schweiger.
All right, folks, welcome to the interview portion of Cinema Degeneration's Albert Pune Appreciation Month. This is in conjunction with our arcade episode. Uh, we have with the, us right now the produce, producer and also a, a co-worker with, you know, uh, a co-producer, a co-confidant, I guess, if you will, for Full Moon Productions, Mr. Daniel Schweiger. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Happy to be here. Now, um, for those of our listeners at home that that don't know, I'm going to start off with the beginning of your full moon career, and uh, then work into the the arcade questions that I have. Of course. But now, I, as I'm mostly familiar with your work, other than uh, your acting work, especially with like the Phantasm Ravager, which I must gush for a moment. I am a big fan of. No thanks. Yeah, you worked with my buddy Reggie, who I've worked with on a couple of films, and. Uh, yeah, as as the Hemi Cuda thief. <laughs> yes, we're very hard for almost an impossible car to drive. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet. But uh, my first question for you is is a little bit about your promotional work with Full Moon uh, throughout the '90s. So I guess from '91 to '96, something like on, that. Yeah, yeah, roughly. You worked on several dozen of the Full Moon Video Zone. So I just, I've got yeah. to ask, as a big fan of the Video Zone segments, what was it like working on something as innovative as the Video Zone magazine at the time? Well, I started actually my first job w- it was with Troma. I like to call it Trauma. <laughs> in, in in the Hell's Kitchen uh, location, and I got fired because uh, basically I was I was like in a building that was used to be this ex bordello, and like uh, Russian sailors would show up, and I just couldn't quite handle that. While it just a whole bunch of stuff, and then I basically got into trailer editing uh, at a really cool place called EMC um, in New York. And at that point, I, my my whole goal was to, you know, to end up in LA. I wanted to, you know, just kind of, you know, cut my teeth in New York City, as it were, you know, where I'm kind of, I'm from the East Coast. And um, basically, um, uh, oh, oh my God, why am I blanking? Uh, a really amazing trailer guy named Gary recommended me to, um, uh, I believe he said Automat, which does a lot of really fantastic uh, DVD extras. Uh, Gary Auerbach um, recommended me to uh, Char- Charles, and Charles hired me, uh, you know, to do their promotions. So I was very lucky. So I basically went to, um, you know, Full Moon. I had a job. You know, a lot of people go to LA without a job, and I was super lucky because I moved there with a job. <laughs> and uh, I I loved it. Uh, it was just such a wonderfully creative place. You know, I wrote their ad copy. I cut the trailers. Um, and with video sounds, I didn't do the making ups. The making ups were, the only, I think maybe the only one I kind of did was arcade or worked or kind of was more part of it. But essentially the kind of main body of the video zones were kind of like, the making of us were done by somebody else, but everything else was stuff that I did, like the little segments I did. Uh, I also did some second unit stuff there. And uh, basically I was on the path to directing arcade too. Unfortunately, when, you know, the Paramount closed in and that was kind of the end of, 
you know, full moon because I basically had to have a paycheck. I mean, and I was kind of when I was in full moon, I was kind of dabbling into doing temp tracks. Uh, actually, I temp tracked the Sandlot while I was at full moon. Uh, oh, you know, love that. Hours, yeah, and I worked on uh, Sliver, and um, I worked on Mr. Jones with a, a fantastic music supervisor named Tim Sexton. And so basically, you know, when when Paramount essentially kind of shut down full moon as it was. Uh, I essentially kind of jumped ship into my bread and butter gig, which was music editing. Uh, but it sent definitely my highlight of Full Moon was arcade, you know, by by far uh, was, you know, really being a part of that completely along with Robert Burnett and uh, Peter Billingsley. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was just awesome. You know, essentially I came up like if you ever saw the blood, you know, I can't wait to actually go to the Alamo Draft House with Ted and Denise to see uh you know the the Bloodstone prequel that's coming out, or you know it's playing at the Draft House. I came yeah, up. Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I have tickets to to see it next month yeah. in Chicago. Yes. If you remember that whole the Bloodstone two, I came up with the entire trailer concept of having images within the uh, revolving crystal. That was me. You know, I, I did oh. that. I did the whole lurking fear like original trailer where you saw like these kind of hands digging through the dirt and then it bursts up through a graveyard that was all done in miniature and I came again it's another concept that I came up with and again Charlie was awesome uh he really just totally let you do what you do he was totally receptive to like to ideas everyone was everyone there was it was just awesome it was like a family and when it was kind of like when it was really kind of a mini studio you had like an effect shop you had like a, a like a, a coffee shop uh you know everything it was just fantastic and i've never as much as i i love you know working doing temps and whatever i've never had a cooler job you know than this <laughs> if they ever had the money and say come back I would, you know you know i mean it, it's you know again it, it was just a wonderful time oh that's great that's awesome to hear and and the fact that you came up with the concept for the subspecies 2 trailer right subspecies yes. 2 is hands down uh i can't say it's my favorite uh full moon movies my second favorite first favorite always goes to transfers three i gotta i gotta get, be honest there but like subspecies two is just yeah. a perfect 10 out of 10 yeah you can catch me on a stretcher and not transfers three in the in one shot and like and again interestingly enough i kind of got into temping through pit and the pendulum where i became really wonderful friends with Stuart gordon um who, whom i met there uh, you know, when I was at full moon. Um, but again, you know, the thing was that, you know, these direct-to-video movies was really something, you know, Charlie kind of pioneered VHS with Mita, you know, with Hollow, you know, really was one of the pioneers of, you know, VHS of home video. And with full moon at the, you know, when I got there, I got there around Puppet Master 2, uh, and I left with Jack Kirby, Time Master or whatever. And, um, you know, again, they were they were really were putting a lot of effort into these things. These were like little movies, and now you know, God knows what they make them for. You know, <laughs> not much evidently, but it's kind of not, definitely not what it was when I was there. Uh, you know, working on you know where they really cared. I mean, and then you had some really super ambitious productions like The Pit and the Pendulum. Uh, you, you know, where beautiful they, film, beautiful yeah, film. really shot in Italy. You know, like lurk, you know, uh um lurking fear was shot in you know they did a lot of stuff in romania um oh my god what are some of the other bigger ones i mean but again it was it was just really a, a fantastic time you know they really cared about what they did 
you know, and even though, again, the budget, some of them just were pretty goofy, but some of them were pretty, really kind of cool, you know? Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, people like David Nutter, who became one of the biggest, you know, kind of pilot directors, if not the biggest, the the pilot director, got his, what, got his start there kind of doing transfers, uh uh four and five and um and again they had the studio you know and they shot shrunken heads it was like a whole giant soundstage it was just really you know you really were kind of part of something there you're part of a studio that encompassed every single aspect of the filmmaking process you know and for a like a 21 year old kid you know, like me, you know, being a part of that or, you know, someone who's just always loved the movies and particularly genre films. It was just awesome, you know, to be mm -hmm. a part of that. And again, because it was a family. It really was. Um, you worked on two different films with Albert Pune, uh, Doll Man and Arcade. I just yeah. got to ask a little bit. What was it like actually working under, you know, you know, Pune? You know, I never did. <laughs> I oh, never, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, basically, Albert was a very nice guy, and I, I feel terrible because one time I cornered him, like when I first met him, and I gave him the riot act about Captain America. <laughs> I can kick myself, you know, for doing that. Um, Albert was a very nice man. I honestly really didn't have any contact with him. I mean, I, I, like everyone, I was a huge fan of the Sword and the Sorcerer, which I, you know, definitely is is his finest hour, and it's just still. A, super fun and energetic movie and he and albert i believe had a huge deal you know with full moon so it was kind of like on the one thing and off to the next so i never had any kind of contact with albert on arcade and with dollman too the movie was essentially done and uh and it's okay we'll cut the trailer of this so i never had a other than <laughs> telling him i didn't like captain america um terrible about it he was albert was a super nice guy in, in my very brief encounters with him he was very nice and ironically i would end up doing liner notes for the score to down twisted Kind of, I felt like I, it was kind of like a makeup. I really felt I had to do it, Albert. I wanted to kind of make that up in my own head, so I, yeah, I was able to do, you know, the Charlie Rocket movie. Uh, I did like learn notes for that, uh, you know, for Vares Saraband. Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, Charlie came to me and said, you know, this movie isn't working, and we need to get this out and fix it. And uh, and again, you know. It was pretty unwatchable, and I believe that his cut did come out on video in some places where you could see what this thing was before we got a hold of it. But uh, but Charlie basically gave me and Robert and Peter carte blanche within a budget, you know, to some kind of budget to do the best we could to make this into something that could be released and to, you know, take the story and try to make, it was completely, utterly nonsensical. Nothing made sense. So I tried to, you know, I rewrote the die. Basically when they were wearing their helmets, you could have anything coming out of their mouths. So I tried, I rewrote a bunch of the, of the dialogue, you know, David Goyer, who obviously went on to much bigger things, uh, you know, uh, wrote the original script. And so basically when people, I, I would have dialogue that would try to explain stuff like what is even arcade. So I came up with the whole idea of like, he was like a brain damaged kid and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Uh, you know, so within the, the rewrites within the helmets. And again, there were like, there was a lot of second unit stuff that we did 
you know, like the levels showing stuff that explained the movie as best we could. And again, you have to remember, this is like after the lawn, the like the lawnmower man. And we were given like, I think the budget of the lawnmower of one lunch on the lawnmower man, <laughs> you know, to, to redo you were this. Given their cappuccino, cappuccino, we were given budget, their cappuccino right? budget. You know, I went to, uh, I went to Montreal. I worked with a really great company called DHD post image, uh, that did all the effects. And uh, I mean, I'm really proud of what we did. I, I mean, and it's just incredible, you know, Dustin and you, you know, there are fans of this, you know, who, you know, have kept this going. I mean, again, I'm super proud. I mean, there are definitely, there's stuff that I completely came up with, like came up with the steel drag, the, 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 the steel robot dragon, the, the light. That was one of my art. favorite secrets. Yeah. The whole, the whole chase scene was something I came up with. Cause there was just nothing there. And I mean, what it was, it was just awful. And we came up, you know, what's just stuff to, you know, make this into the best movie that we could. And again, everyone gave, you know, Rob, you know, Peter and Robert gave it 150%. And when you look at it, you know, Peter, who obviously was the star of the film, um, it was kind of his start in a way, you know, he would obviously direct real movies, you know, and, and Robert would do free enterprise where I was, I played myself and like this whole kind of recreation of full moon. And again, we all really busted our asses and really cared uh, to try to, as they say, uh, create silk out of a sow's ear. And I think given what, given what this was and what we turned it into, I I'm really still incredibly proud of it. Well, as well, you should be. It's, it's you know, uh, it's part of like the Paramount Golden Era of, of you know full moon films, and I think, I think it's definitely one of the top ten, you know, uh, most yeah, memorable I, full moon love, films. I'd love to see this come out in Blu-ray. I mean, I know for whatever, but dude, just just put the this transfer the DVD to Blu-ray. I don't care. Whatever it takes, man. Get this thing out in Blu-ray. <laughs> if they, if, they really wanted to. If they wanted to bad enough, they could. They, they oh, could. absolutely. I, I think they absolutely could. Absolutely. They could get this out in Blu-ray. But again, you know, yeah. when we did it, you know, all the actors kind of came back, you know, Megan, War, Megan and Seth and everyone came back and did their ADR, you know, for this. And again, having Peter as part of this was, you know, obviously a big, you know, you know, who obviously I was a huge fan of, you know, Christmas story. And he was a great he's a great guy, um, really just terrific. And zero attitude and and again in a way when you look at it really kind of gave peter and rob the you know the the kind of experience that they would obviously parlay into much you know bigger bigger things uh but it's kind of cool having this is kind of like you know like the first thing you know and again you know we would have done a sequel i mean i had kind of written a whole idea for a sequel you know, but again, when Paramount when Paramount shut down, you know, when when full when full moon kind of got shut down, uh, as it in that incarnation, it just all went to seed. And again, I had to have a job, and uh, I was supposed to, you know, direct. Uh, you know, so it, it sucks for me. I mean, again, I I'm very happy with what I've accomplished doing music, but again, like everybody else, you know. But but there's this whole thing in Hollywood where there's this romantic, you know, what I call the romance of spam eating in your apartment. You know, like okay, I nearly starved to death, you know, eating Cheetos and spam until I finally sold my script, and now I I mean I got two million dollars. I'm directing, and people love that shit. You know, they love that <laughs> right. story of 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 nearly starving to death for your art. But I, I homie, don't play like that. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you, you, you got bills to pay and you got miles to feed. You exactly. Know? I got I I had I had a, you know I had I 
wanted to live a decent life and I, I had to get a job that paid money. And, and, you know, thanks to Segway music and to, you know, modern music, uh, you know, I was able to kind of spin into doing this full time. And again, I, I was doing it while I was at full moon. I was like kind of, you know, temping stuff and, you know, and again, the Sandlot just had its anniversary. So that was just really cool to work on a movie that is just a classic, you know, that is endured uh, like that, you know. But again, Full Moon, you know, in terms of temping, the, you know, I started at Full Moon. You know, Stuart um, uh, basically said, you know, here's the, you know, uh, ending of The Pit and the Pendulum. And, and I went to temp track the ending of the film. And they just actually put out the Richard Band soundtrack, which is phenomenal. It's one of the best things that Richard has ever done. And, you know, and but again, I... You know, I, I tempt, unlike, you know, I don't, I don't know if Richard knew or not, but I did temp track the, the film. Uh, and again, I temp tracked the line in the winter into the whole ending, you know, the whole, you know, where they finally come out of the pendulum and Stuart loved mm -hmm. it. And that was, that was the start. Uh, that was the start of a whole, of a whole career in film music. you not being a composer, but doing everything else you can do without right, being right. To write a single note of music. And it was thanks to Stuart, you know. Uh, and again, there were editors at Fullman who've gone on to giant things. I mean, and again, they had they would have their editing rooms there. And uh, but again, you know, not only did I make you know meet some really just incredible people, you know, it, you know, it was being able to become really, you know, friends with Stuart Gordon, who is just a, a lovely, fantastic human being in, in every respect. And, you know, and again, it's the same thing with, you know, Don Coscarelli, you know, whom I met, you know, after I gave Phantasm 3 a legit good review in Fangoria magazine. It's like, hey, come have a have lunch with me and Angus at Musso and Frank's. So, oh, sure. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> well, yeah, why would you ever turn that down? <laughs> exactly. And then we became, you know, we're still great friends. And, uh, in, and again, the nicest thing, you know, for a kid like me, you know, growing up in the eighties, you know, sitting, seeing reanimator and, and, and phantasm, you know, to discover these, these horror directors you've idolized are the nicest people on the face of the planet. And you can call them their, your friend really means a lot to me. Because I think, you know, the thing is, I love movies, you know, again, I'm <laughs> I'm super snarky on Facebook, you know, about that. But but I have a legitimate love of films and an enthusiasm of movies, no matter what you do. You know, I just love the movies. I'm a nutty Blu-ray. You know, I click Blu-rays like Ray, Ray Milan drank booze in the last weekend. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, I just love the movies, man. And, and yeah, my again, must watch pile is getting huge. No, it's it don't even look at mine. It's going to kill someone if it falls over. Uh, but but again, the whole thing, <laughs> again, is, you know, being having, you know, coming to L.A. is a wide eyed person who wanted to work in the movies and whatever respect. Uh, you know, and being in thrown into this whole kind of mini studio uh, where people, you know, did the best they could. And, you know, they're sitting, hey, Dave, David Allen is like uh, animating a robot. I'll go hang out and see David Allen animating a robot, you know, or Mike Deke is, you know, doing makeup effects in the make, you know, like um, or I can or I'm going to go to the set of Transfers 3 or I'll go to the set of uh, Demonic Toys, you know, and watch this giant, you know, uh, you know, clown. You know, so you know you could go to the set and um, 
so yeah, you know, I, I was just doing every even stuff like you know the bubblegum cards. I did this video called "Salespeople in the Fourth Dimension" or something, where they, you know, where I, where they, they literally had they. It was a gift to the the representatives. They literally put them in a movie, you know. So stuff like that. It was just a lot of fun, you know. I'll tell you my funny story. I would sounds like I, a riot. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was kind of like, there was like two floors, and I was in the bottom floor, and I you know I'd bring my lunch, and 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 unfortunately, I like liver, and <laughs> and the <laughs> deputy, lovely, wonderful person, said, "Don't ever bring in liver for lunch again." <laughs> it's it's kind of like the person that brings in fish and microwaves it in the right. The, the, exactly. The lunch room. That was that was I was that guy. So I, I learned. <laughs> <laughs> not bringing the lunch because the kids smelled upstairs, you know, but, um, but again, you know, you know, again, there was the financial shenanigans going on there, but, but again, you know, uh, everyone there was just super cool to work with. I mean, they had a record, they had a record label that I, you know, and I actually did some kind of music soup on subspecies. I like, you know, supervised the album that came out. So, uh, you know, and again, I would have Denise stuff come in and do ADR for the trailer. So, like, when I did these trailers, obviously, a lot of times the the, the Samix wasn't done. So, I'd have the actors come in and, uh, you know, uh, you know, do ADR. Like, again, like, when I did Arcade, that's like, because I was friendly with John, John Fuller from Pit and the Pendulum. You know, he came in and did the voice of Arcade, which, you know, I affected. Uh you know, became friends with, you know, Jeff Combs and, you know, hung out a little bit with Lance Henriksen while they were doing Pit and the Pendulum. Um, you know, and again, oh, you, you know, you poor, you poor fellow, you. I know. And <laughs> it, was, it was fucking awesome, man. You know, again, you know, and everyone was just super cool. Like you go to a, a casting session. Hey, isn't that Svern Darden from from like Real Genius? Or, hey, there's Jay, oh, and like. Ben, uh, who is Charles' secretary, introduced me to James Gammon, who's like this amazing Western character actor. I I was a total geek, so I knew all I knew who all these people were, you know, who would you know come in or, you know, like even on Shrunken Heads, um, you know, I got to see Richard shoot a bunch of that, and like you know, there's there's Julius uh, Har you know Harris Harris uh, shooting uh, you know on the set, and I'll tell you what was super cool was the Doctor Mordred set. Oh my God, that was one oh, of the yeah. coolest sets I've. I mean, all those television monitors it was amazing. How that that set, uh, in, and even then we went to the Natural Museum of History to you know shoot the plates for the dinosaur battle. Um, at the end of that movie. So again, there's all these wonderful memories of, you know, just again, just the kind of energy that, you know, was going into these really well shot movies. You know, Adolfo did a great job shooting them. But again, with arcade, again, you know, you're given a finished thing and it's like, how do you create, you know, something that is, you know, because again, it's like Charlie basically said, fix this, you know, and, uh, and we did <laughs> to the best of our abilities. Yeah, you would never know from the finished product that it was something that was, as you said, you know, almost kind yeah. of unwatchable because and, it's a beautifully made film. And what's so crazy again is that the original version of that thing is out there, I believe. And um, and like even a lot of the posts, like some of the stills are the original version of the film. I mean, again, it was just like the worst episode of Doctor Who you've ever seen. Not, I mean, I'm not saying Doctor Who sucked, but but just in terms of the technical quality of this thing, it was just it was just it was subpar. Even for full moon you know which had some kind of dicey special effects yeah you know? yeah 
cases, Charlie realized this cannot be released. It, it would just downgrade the brand. It could not be released as it stood. Well, that answers uh, a couple of questions I have because uh, I did have a question about if you could recollect anything from the Trouble production, but I think we've covered that one. Yeah, I wasn't, uh, and I wasn't there for any of it. We did shoot some. <laughs> second, we did shoot some second unit stuff, but again, you know, we were given all the 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 film. So what was cool again is the way that they shot these things. We could just digitally replace the backgrounds. So even though a lot of the, you know, the you know the actors are there, and then obviously, you know, again, I got. Alan Howarth to, you know, who was to do sound effects for the trailers as well. And even like I got Tony Todd to do a, 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 a did he work on, I don't know if he ever did, but again, I met Tony Todd through there. Um, and uh, again, Alan Howarth had completely did all the sound for it. They actually put out the arcade score. I couldn't believe it. I sent uh, Dustin a copy of it, but uh, uh, Dragon's Domain put out arcade along with some other Alan Howarth uh, scores in a, in a CD. So that was amazing to finally get the music for arcade out there. Um, but Alan did a great job. I mean, he did every soup to nuts sound on that. And I learned also that it is important not if you pet bunnies to lock the cages <laughs> don't even get oh brother that was awful but but anyways but alan was awesome and again i just had such mad respect for alan you know with his work you know that he did with john carpenter and he was also an amazing sound effects guy you know poltergeist star trek the motion picture you know um so again you know the thing at full moon is as a kid you're, you're you can find a way to work with a lot of these people you know that you really admired um you know, but again, you know, t you know, Albert did obviously, you know, shoot all the the movie itself was Albert. You know, I mean, the movie, movie, you know, all the stuff outside of the game, uh, you know, was Albert. So again, we're given this footage, and it's like, and we recut it, you know, and and again, it was always about trying to, for me, it was always trying to explain stuff, trying to have it make sense. The game made literally no sense. You know, it just made no friggin' sense whatever they were doing or trying to do. I so basically, it's like okay, let's have like a goal or levels or keys. How does she resurrected the the original ending after she shoots herself, and then she's like, what? <laughs> so right. we came, so it's like we came up with the idea that she's got an extra life, you know, and and just again trying to clarify that stuff. That's what again, I kind of figured Norbert Weiser's character was there for as as the. Uh, Kind of, yeah. I kind mean, of explained a little bit of it. A little bit, just a little bit. And also, you know, John Delancey, who is a phenomenal actor. I cut his reel uh, when I was at Full Moon, and it was so amazing. You know, I mean, I just, nothing but props for Norbert and, and John, but I'll never forget cutting John's reel. And, you know, watching the scene from Fearless, where he's, you know, in Fearless, he is the passenger next to Jeff Bridges, and he was crying watching this scene with him in it, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. You know, even Andrew Devoff coming down and I like helped him with the reel or, you know, so I was kind of doing a lot of different stuff while I was there, but always, you know, getting the job done. And even in Lurking Fear, I, you know, again, that was, a, you know, had some problems and I, you know, came up with second unit stuff uh, that I shot, um, you know, uh, to help kind of clarify some of the story. Uh, you know, even like Rob and Dave Parker, you know, um, and me played cannibals, you know, so we, we actually shot second unit stuff like the this, this stuff with like the creature and the priest box, you know, shots of the 
of the cave, things happening in the cave. Again, stuff that would help, you know, clarify, you know, you know, problems that Charlie, you know, had, you know, with the movie. And and again, I think Courtney Joyner did a great job of writing and directing that. And Courtney also was there doing a lot of stuff, a lot of script stuff for Full Moon. It, and it again, seems like, like oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, again, a lot of these people I'm still really, you know, friends or acquaintances. And again, you know, Ted and Denise were just fantastic people. And, you know, you see the the production quality, and sub, especially Subspecies 2. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing. You know, and even the Puppet Master, uh, you know, uh, 4 and 5, or 3. I was actually on the set of Universal when they shot. That was cool. Like, hey, oh, my God, we're on the Universal back lot shooting Puppet Master 3. And on 4 and 5, you got to see this incredible kind of Bunraku giant demon puppet that they built. And again, I think all it's the, impressive. Yeah, and all the stuff that they they fabricated was there. Uh, you know, it was all built in this studio. It's kind of like you know, Hammer had their house, the the Bray house, and Full Moon had a studio. It was just like the the Camelot in a in a in a way, you know. Yeah, well, that you know, that, that's amazing because it seems like you know, much like on, on some of the sets that I I'm a fledgling filmmaker myself, very 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 low budget. It seems like you you know, you almost have to be a jack of all trades, and it seems like that's exactly what you were. You were doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, I was. But again, you know, Charlie really, really got a lot of cool people, you know, even with the budgets that he had. And he really hired, you know, got really enthusiastic, cool people. Chris Endicott, they're finally putting out the primevals. That's finally going to get done. That might hold a record for the longest movie ever in production, ever. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm sure it has. (laughs) Yeah, I even cut together a reel for that. Year decades ago, that kind of told the story with the footage that they had. So I can't wait to see how this is all going to come out. But again, you know, like you, you have David Allen there, who I was such a huge fan of, as you know, for his animation. And again, you know, it, it's just so cool, you know, being there and seeing all this stuff happen in front of you. But again, people really did care. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, don't. There's a lot of slipshod, really crappy stuff being done now obviously they they didn't even have the budgets of full moon uh but when you see people actually care as opposed to let's grab a video camera recorder and shoot garbage you know it's right like, right these, these people were shooting movies in 35 millimeter they were they were really kind of pioneering a whole direct-to-video market and they cared even yeah. you, you'd have your seed people you know but 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 again you know I mean, Dalton is a lot of fun. You know, it's a really fun movie, you know. Um, but it was just really great because, you know, you, you just everyone know everybody else. You know, again, we, again as I said, it was kind of like it was a family, you know, just really, you know, a really good attitude, you know, all around. And also, okay, well, we're trying to get people paid. That wasn't the fun part. But but again, it was just the crazy. Yeah, the checks in the mail, so to speak. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, my God. You know, but. But again, it was work, you know, and again, Charlie was a great, very, he literally, I think, I think him, him and Walt Disney are in the same, uh, <laughs> the cryogenic too, because he literally does not age. I, I, I think, again, there is a Dorian Gray portrait of Charlie somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I've had a conversation uh, with uh, Dustin about that. Yeah, yeah, and they're going to find it. But again, you know, also again, you know, I met, you know, I met Albert, who I was, you know, obviously I knew from, you know, I buried the living and Red Batch of Courage. And Albert was wonderful. Just a great old, you know, old 
tycoon, old empresario. And then I became friends with Richard, who I've done like a million liner notes for. Uh, you know, and again, when Richard did Pit and the Pendulum, he, he was able to get an orchestra, you know. I mean, and again, you know, I met a lot of cool composers through that. Again, I try to have original scores in my, on the trailers I did. You know, so I really cared about those trailers. I tried to make every one of them a little movie. You know, I did would do the sound effects and the voices, you know. And again, I, I did not do the trailer for Puppet Master 2, but but from then on I did do I did all of them, you know, I did uh Dollman, you know, and I did I do it all I don't know if I did all man. Um but again, Mortared I sure did and uh and again I would again try to do really the best human job I could with these trailers. Again, I love trailers myself, you know. I love tra- old-fashioned trailers because it, it yeah. seems to me like modern trailers give away way too much. Oh, it, I kind of told. I kind of told the story. I, maybe I kind of showed you the the. Again, it was it was. I never really had any kind of comments. I would just kind of do my thing, and there it is. And you know, <clears throat> so no one was like there was no micromanaging of any kind. People were just happy to get the work done. They were happy to get the stuff done. You know, and. Right. It's kind of where where it all came from, you know. Wow, that's that's awesome. I, I love to to hear the ins and outs of like actually cutting films on like on film, like on a legit film. Thirty five oh, millimeters yeah. is yeah. amazing. The editing rooms were there, you know, as well. So again, you could pop in, and you know, I could ask for footage and stuff like that. You know, if I needed, you know, like a shot to, you know. Because you have to remember, some some of these things only had like maybe like a minute of the good stuff, as you could say. So it's like you're trying to cut a trailer, <laughs> and, and so these <laughs> right. every, like last frame of animation of like a subspecies animation, and you know to get those little guys into the trailer, um, you know. But again, everyone was just really passionate and had a good, you know, like you know David Schmoller was there for Netherworld, which was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, so again, there were a lot of, you know, cool people who had been through, you know, Charlie, uh, you know, a lot of them through Empire, um, you know, and then they're releasing a, a box set, you know, my friend Daniel Griffith has a pretty amazing, just like everything you've ever, ever wanted to know about Empire documentary that's going to be coming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, just to, to have been a part of that whole deal. You know, and I think, again, people still really love these movies. The video zones, I think, are getting not the entire things, but the the making ups are getting ported into certain DVDs. But, you know, I would have like these little segments like okay, how like, you know, and I even did like a Puppet Master toy commercial, you know, which I'm pretty oh, proud cool. Of. Uh, so I don't know where that stuff lives. But again, it's all on Laserdisc. <laughs> I've got all the Laserdiscs. Uh, well, you're speaking my love language, man. I am an avid Laserdisc collector. I have I a collection. <laughs> I, got, I got like 1,700 of them, I think, now. Oh, my God. How much of them are playable? I mean, uh, it's like with the most of them, like, uh, Most of them are. Most, most of the ones I have are, are in good condition, but I, I got several dozen that are just sitting in a corner in a box that is just, I can't get rid of the sleeves because I love the artwork of them right yeah i think yeah. my wife loves them a whole lot less than i do <laughs> right yeah trust me i've run i've run out of things are falling out of the ceiling in terms of me just i can't stop picking shit up so yeah right well i do have one i have a couple questions yeah uh, left if you got time and i have yes, one yeah. last arcade question um it's about the the proposed sequel that was written that never got fully like materialized i'm like what 
if anything that you know that like, can you tell well, us anything about the proposed sequel? That basically, like Alex, like uh, Peter Billingsley's character would have been killed. Like basically, it would have taken place at a college, and um, Arcade is a- able to. I, I had like this whole idea of like Arcade, kind of like the kid crawling out of the out of a grave, like kind of becoming like a cyber, like getting cyber shit that allows him to basically resurrect himself. And it just becomes. It's just a bigger idea. It's just a bigger idea of arcade you know kind of similar idea but again it would have taken place at college and it would have i had the treatment somewhere man i I wrote it like 30 years ago but that's that was the gist of it is that kind of megan mort's character would have you know tried to avenge peter billingsley's character who kind of realizes what arcade's next nefarious scheme is going to be but it would have been really ambitious you know given the budget but again it was not to be. Who knows? Maybe it could be if they ever. If they, I, you could definitely go back to it. I think. Uh, but uh, that was basically the idea, from what I remember. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I long to see it. You know, we never say never. I mean, when the, you know, that took this long to come out with uh, Sub CC Five, anything can happen. Exactly. Well, but God, that, I mean, let, let's put it this way. You know, uh, arcade exists like in an old uh, video on an old game cassette. God knows what someone could uh, do with that using today's uh, virtual reality. And if you poured over arcade into uh, a virtual reality uh, domain, uh, maybe could possess possess people. We could, we could brainstorm something right now. But yeah, but, yeah. The idea is always to it. Play, playing a game, you know, playing it would be some kind of a quest game or, you know, it would be something along the lines of a quest, I think. Oh, that would have been awesome. Would have loved to have seen it. Like I said, maybe someday. Never say never. Yeah, exactly. No, I, like, I, uh, I think oh, there was sorry. a whole sword fight in it. I remember I think there was like a sword. I had the idea of like a sword, like a kind of like a robot sword battle or something like that. That would have been just a lot more ambitious. The more you the more you talk about it, the more I want to see it. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's make it. <laughs> uh, my one question that is uh, not uh, full moon or arcade related is your uh, collaborations. You touched base on uh, working with Don Coscarelli. I mean, everything from starting with writing the review for Phantasm 3, working on mu- music uh, with Phantasm 4, your, your small role in Phantasm 5, Ravager, you know, Bubba Hotep, John dies at the end, and just what's it like? Because he is one of my two favorite filmmakers. Well, he's a uh, great guy. I mean, oh my god. I mean, well, I mean, I saw Phantasm for the first time like at eleven thirty at night on Friday night. It was part of like those CBS after midnight movies or whatever. And then I actually saw the uncut version of it when they released it in the double bill with the fog. Two of the great. Greatest genre films ever made, in my opinion. And um, John was just a great guy. Again, I was a mega fan when I met Don. And again, just the nicest guy you can meet. And again, it's all really about, you know, family. Uh, You know, he's just a wonderful person. and And it's essentially kind of like a family of people. And so... With Phantasm 4, um, I was out on the set. You know, just I got to go to the set a couple of times to to see him make it. But I I basically temp tracked the film with Don. Uh, you know, he came over and I was at that now at that point I was over at Modern Music. You know, doing a temp tracking professionally, and um, I totally temp tracked Phantasm 4 with Don. And then when Bubba Hotep came up, um, so one of the first people. Now it, the, the funny thing is that when I 
I live in Tahunga, um, and it was kind of like the last place I ended up with. You know, it, like in I, I lived in a bunch of different places when I moved to LA back in 1990, and one of the very first actors I met was Dan Roebuck. Uh, you know, when I moved out here, and needless to say, I was a raging fan of The River's Edge, huge, massive fan of The Thank River's Edge. Thank you for mentioning that. That movie doesn't and, get enough mentioning. Oh, it's incredible. I love that film. Incredible. I mean, it's still like a major. It's so funny. I was actually at the New Beverly at recent, and they ran the trailer for it. But Dan is like night. Literally, it couldn't be so far away from that guy. And I may have been felt, you know, had anger issues, not to that point, but I identified with this character. But Dan is the nicest, happiest awesome person big monster fan of all you know so basically when i moved here i i i met i think i met dan through a friend and i took him to a screening of the reboot of night of the living dead and um we just became friends and um so when don did baba hotep it's like hey you want to you know be in a movie with dan i'm like yeah jesus of course i'd love to i had actually already gotten into sag through a spec commercial i did uh, when I was in um, in LA, I you know it was a really funny spec commercial. I wish I had a copy of it, but uh, I got tapped Hartley didn't sag. Um, so I'll, I'll just backtrack. So basically, um, I got tapped Hartley into sag to a commercial. So it was like, okay, well here, hey, do you know do a movie, you know, have this fun part of the the Hearst guy with Dan, and it was just amazing. I mean, you know, to be on that set. You know, and, you know, there's Aussie Davis and Bruce Campbell. I made the huge mistake of bringing my Evil Dead 2 red laser disc for him to sign like the first day like a moron. And I <laughs> presented it to him and, and Bruce in total Elvis get up goes, hey, man, what, what, what you got there, buddy? And it was like, oh, boy. But but anyways, uh, it was an amazing experience. And um, and, uh, you know, then but with Bubba Hotep, I actually helped get Brian Tyler to score the film. And this is, you know. Uh, before Brian Tyler was Brian Tyler. And uh, Brian was awesome. We temp tracked a lot of the film with Six String Samurai. And so I just approached, because I was at that point, I was doing a lot of journalism. I do, I have a, a soundtrack site called onthescore.com. Um, and uh, one word, on the score. And uh, basically, I knew Brian's work. I had interviewed him or something. So basically, I got Brian to do uh, Bubba Hotep. And then he did John Dice at the end because he just, Brian's a big, big old genre geek on top of the guy who scores Rambo and the Fast and the Furious. He's like a total, you know, fan of this stuff. So basically, I, I got Brian on Bubba Hotep. And interestingly enough, kind of backtracking, like, you know, I, you know, I worked with Jeff Burr at Full Moon and I was a music supervised this really pretty amazing war film. He did it called Straight in the Darkness. And I got Michael Convertino to score it. So a lot of things started for me at Full Moon, uh, a lot of different kind of facets. Um, so basically, you know, going back to John Dies at the end, you know, it, it was just this insanely ambitious script. I'm like, how the hell are you going to make this thing? It's like it's insane. This is like a hundred million dollar movie. But he he really pulled it off as, as only Don could. He, I'm kind of like a glimpse glimpse and you'll miss me at the Chinese restaurant, the the kind of framing device with Paul Giamatti and uh, Chase. But that was what was awesome. I was there for that whole scene. I, you know, just being able to see Paul Giamatti work with all this dialogue. And he's such a nice guy. And he and he's like a, he's the guy who wants to see the sequel to Bubba Hotep get made. Paul is, remains trying to get this thing made, <laughs> and uh, and um, 
and then with you know Fanta- then with phantasm you know it was a, a much more significant role it's and it's really interesting it's like the only clip of the movie that got released was with my character that's like the only kind of media clip that got released was the scene with me in the car with reggie and um and so basically, you know, I met the director, David Hartman, you know, and Don was producing, but it was, you know, David directing it. And uh, I was, it was just amazing. I mean, you know, driving the Cuda, being like literally lying in my in my undies, like in a baking hot highway in the in the boonies of Palmdale uh, and getting sphered. I mean, oh, my God, dude, this is like, you know, I grew up you know, of seeing Phantasm two a million times or, you know, and, and here I am getting the whole, this, the sphere treatment. Um, it was amazing. Uh, and, um, yeah, we, we even just had like the Bubba Hotep 20th anniversary event at Dark Delicacies and, you know, like a ton of people showed up. And that movie, again, it's like it, I'm it, acting is something I definitely am still pursuing. But again, I'm very lucky to essentially, you know, be in free enterprise playing myself at Full Moon and, and, and you know, in Bubba Hotep, uh, which just, again, is just a, a, an undying cult movie along with Phantasm. And, you know, Don is always trying to, you know, has, you know, get stuff off the ground uh i think he's an amazing person he's someone whose work i grew up watching and it's just again it's nice and his whole family is awesome and he he just is a great guy and to be a kind of part of that sphere along with Stuart gordon when he was here um really meant a lot i mean really meant a lot to me especially as such a fan of their work and suddenly you know hey let's go let's go for korean barbecue you know <laughs> right right yeah like when you said that he had invited, you, like, hey, come meet me and Re- Reggie and Angus and like have dinner with yeah, us. Like, was, that was never my. It was obviously never my. You know, I I started that when I lived in New York uh, back in from eighty seven to ninety. I started, you know, I started writing for Cine. I wrote for Cine Fantastic, which to me was like the the Cadillac of, of genre magazines, you know, and also Fangoria and Toxic Horror and um, Horror Fan. So I was doing a lot of writing uh, for these magazines uh, back then. And uh, now essentially I'm kind of, you know, I wrote for a magazine called Venice when I, you know, was in L. But now I'm essentially just everything I do is about film music and liner notes. I do uh, commentaries for uh, Blu-rays, you know, like video segments and stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Fangoria, again, dude, you know, um, and, you know, it was awesome to write for them, you know. Uh, And, again, you know, just out of the blue, I got a call from Don. I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how one thing just leads to another, isn't it? It does. It, it really, it really, it really does. And it, and the world's a lot smaller now. You know, obviously, I back in the day, I didn't have the net. I had like, a, I had an electric typewriter. You know, so with no nothing like the net as as it is today. And I mean, again, it's great. You know, I think that everyone can kind of pick up a camera and make something, but just because you can. You know, I, I think I just think there has to be, uh, again, a level of care. I mean, obviously, you know, no one no one can afford to do stuff. But, you know, even if we look at the kind of stuff that Full Moon is doing, it doesn't hold a candle to the, you know, to what they did when I was there. I, I you know, I, you know, I don't honestly I don't watch any of it, <laughs> but I watch it all. I got to admit, yeah. it's like junk. Yeah, but for me, it's like, obviously, in, yeah, but for me, it's like. You know, like Ted Nicolau, you know, that guy, you know, he's a great guy, you know, and a really talented director. And I just can't wait to see 
this kind of, you know, full moon really, and I obviously have, I have not seen the movie yet, but when you look at the kind of effort that is put into this prequel, which, you know, it's really, that's the kind of, that's the full moon that I knew was, yep, okay, yep. we're going we're gonna to go, we're going to find these amazing castles and we're going to really care and we're going to shoot cool stuff. You know, yeah, so that it looks amazing. I don't think I've been more excited for a movie yeah. in years. I mean, for this to get an Alamo draft house treatment, I mean, that says something right there. Yes, yes, it does. I'm I'm super stoked. I can't wait till next month <laughs> to be and honest. I'm, I'm thrilled for Denise stuff, who is just the nicest human being. You no, know, it just wonderful person. You know, well, if you if you got time for one last yeah. question before I let you go, I know I tried to I say I tried to keep Dude, this not, under an hour. You can ask me anything you'd like to. I'm not, <laughs> at five o'clock, I start talking to another guy, but it, it's so I kind of time both things. It's like it's nice that I get remembered for this stuff. But yeah, ask ask <laughs> away, ask away. Well, well, it's a two part question. One, well, I'll, I'll I'll start with with is just. I guess uh, you sort of already answered it a little bit is what you're working on now doing temp uh, scores and, you know, liner notes. But maybe you could explain just a little bit, you know, for the, you know, the listeners that may, may or may not know, like, what what is exactly a temp score well, temp and what goes track, in, into that? Well, temp tracks are, are kind of, you know, very kind of vilified in a way uh, where it's like, oh, you're the guy who comes in and forces the composer. And basically when a movie, you're proving a, mo a movie and the preview process is very important. Uh, you know, it, it tells the audience what works or doesn't work. You know, it can help get a movie more money. Um, so basically this is the kind of, it's for a recruited audience. And because the composer hasn't scored the film in a lot of cases, <clears throat> you know, or doesn't hasn't even begun to score it, I find music to put to create a kind of fake score with, you know, it's like a whole soundtrack out of other using other soundtracks um, to score stuff. And um, I kind of have my own approach to doing it, you know, where I try to like even if there's like a five sec five minute segment i will only use one composer for those five minutes because i don't want to i don't like stuff that's really choppy uh so it, it, i mean again right at, again when i was at full moon i started working and stuff like the sandlot mr jones um sliver uh and um i worked at a company called segway music and then i went to modern music which became formosa music group which is war so i've essentially been doing temps for about 30 years with the same, again, family of really awesome editors. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I got spoiled right off the bat because two of the best things I ever worked on in my life uh, were First Contact and Insurrection. And, uh, you know, I mean, to work on a Star Trek movie, holy Jesus. You know, I yeah, mean, that's and, like the holy grail, isn't it? And me, you know, being a because I'd met a lot of these composers, you know, through reviewing and you know, suddenly I'm at a Jerry Gold. I'm watching Jerry Goldsmith's, you know, conduct. And, you know, it was amazing, you know, uh, to be able to go to some of these scoring sessions, the movies that I worked on. And I've worked on probably 100, but I've only gotten credit on a few of them. Um, and actually one, one I'm very, very proud of that I worked on is The Whale, uh, where we, you know, um, you know, Rob Simonson, you know, kind of went to the temp track and, you know, and it worked beautifully. And he, you know, was hired to score the film uh, because of that. And suddenly Brendan Fraser is winning an Oscar for The Whale. 
And and again, the, the music is a huge part of that film being so heartrending. Uh, you know, so again, that's when it really works. When you you know when you kind of have you know music that you think is going to work. And and then the guy gets hired, and that's the thing is like people can diss temp tracks all they want to, but when it they they aren't dissing it when it gets them hired. Uh, and like another one that I worked on that actually gave them more money was it. Uh, you know, I temp tra- I, I I helped on the temp track for it, and because it suddenly tested really well, they had all that money to go in and shoot the scene with the where he goes to the room with all the clown stuff. That was not in the right, film. Right. So because the movie tested well, they had the money to spend on the sequence. So temps can really help, you know, they, in, a lot, in some cases they don't. When you have a producer who says, OK, I want it to sound exactly like this, then that's when it does. You know, I in my happy world, no composer would ever hear what I do. You know, they would write something amazingly original, but that's not the way it works. You know, the temp is, you know, you can tell a costume designer, I want Nicole Kidman to be wearing a black Victorian dress with frocks or whatever, but you cannot, how do you describe music? So the temp is a shorthand, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, communicate from the director to the composer what they're looking for. And again, you know, I've been doing it forever. Uh, my wife is a composer named Penka Kuniva. She scored uh, Dragon Age Absolution, which is on Netflix now, an anime series. And, you know, again, she was even reading the articles that I did for Film Score Monthly before we ever met. So basically I write, I have, again, with my site, you can see a lot of the interviews I do. Now, liner notes are like, they're kind of like a lot of kind of boutique labels. Um, And when you get one of these sound, a lot of stuff is now digital, but when you get like one of these older soundtracks, the booklet is like the whole story of how, you know, the score got done and, um, you know, I've done a lot of a lot of these things like, you know, Obsession by Bernard Herrmann, uh, Air Force One by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, a ton of these things. And again, I think what I maybe hopefully what sets me apart uh, is um, that uh, I really go into the, the story of the film as well as the music. So like I've done stuff like Cutter's Way, where I talk to every every person I could talk to you know, or internal affairs, you know, where I talked to Andy Garcia, you know, and it's in addition to the composers, because I really want to, I love painting a key. I write articles, really. It tells you how the movie got made and then how it was scored and all this kind of stuff and what the music does. I can't, I'm not like a good guy to talk in terms of a clefs and fortissimos, which I think is something you get at an Italian restaurant. You know, I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, I talk about, how does the music work in the like if you do nothing about music uh you could pick up one of these booklets and get a good idea about what makes the music special you know or unique or and again this stuff is really directed towards fans you know that through boutique labels like la la land records and trotta quartet like i recently did uh jacob's ladder uh where i talked oh, you know where i talked to adrian line for it you know about working with maurice who, who i kind of knew um and also, like, I recently, you know, again, a lot of this is think, think, you know, the Dan Griffith and also, um, uh, like, I did, like, Audrey Rose, like, like where I'm on camera talking about Michael Small's score for Audrey Rose. You know, Arrow has that for sale here. I'm doing a thing for The Bounty where I talk about Vangelis' music. Um, uh, 
you know, so this is a whole kind of new category for me is going on camera and talking about, uh, you know, I've done like a thing for First Blood, you know, for Basic Instinct, uh, Mystery Men, uh, which actually when it came out in 4K here, they actually expanded the music segment. Uh, and again, a lot of this stuff kind of goes back to my job where like I, I temp tracked Mystery Men. And I was on the stage when Shirley Walker uh, did her all of her additional music for that. So I was there, you know, seeing that it was amazing. You know, so to be able to kind of go back and, uh, you know, be able to, you know, write about it or talk about stuff, you know, that I've seen or even Darkman. You know, I did the liner notes for that. And that was like that was kind of like the double header when I moved to L.A., you know, or that in Grand Canyon, I did the liner notes for. So a lot of this stuff is kind of personal you know, stuff that means something to me personally, or, you know, I knew the composer or something, you know, like, like, like an Air Force One, I was actually fired off the movie, we were, te I temp tracked it. Uh, oh, no. Unfortunately, there were all these technical problems that happened uh, over and over. And eventually Wolfgang Peterson got tired of it. And we got jettisoned. But I always love it's the only movie I got fired off of that I just love. And Unfortunately, I wasn't able to talk to Wolfgang for the notes, but I kind of wondered, hey, Wolfgang, I'm the guy you fired, but I did these liner notes for Air Force One, and I love the film. And I was obviously there was nothing about that on the, you know, on, on in the booklet, but, you know, and then another case, this really great little science fiction film called uh, Night Flyers, um, I did for Vares Saraband. And again, that was a composer who was murdered and, you know, by these you know and but and he was like a guy who really could have been somebody in my opinion and he did this beautiful beautiful kind of synth score so in doing those notes i wanted to pay tribute to this guy who could have who could have been and to do something that his mother would read and mean something to her so that was kind of like a mission there but again it's like again i'm not a composer i don't pretend to be one but i love film music i always have my wife's a composer you know so it's like you know, I kind of do everything you can imagine, but not film, you know, not being a composer. But obviously what I really want to do is direct. So, again, that was that was like one thing that, again, had full moon not, you know, ended in its incarnation. I would have ended up directing for sure. Absolutely. But again, I I sold out to actually have a living, have to have a living standard. And here I am. Damn those living standards, right? You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're ready, we have what I, I like to call the final wild card question. Sure. Now, I, I, I usually ask the guests to pick a number between uh, one and ten, depending on which wild card question we go for. Well, so I go, go for five. Five is my favorite number, so I'll just go for five. Okay. Well, you picked my favorite then. <laughs> my favorite. My favorite one is closest. The wild card question is: You have a. If you do have a uh, favorite comfort food movie. Maybe you can, you know, movie that you go to that you can watch at any time, one that you know by heart, you know, or the one that you can just, you, you oh. go in and it just feels like home. What what movie is that? Oh, my God. Uh, you can only pick one. You can only Repo pick one, though. Repo Man. <laughs> Repo yeah. Man? Repo Man. Yeah. I, oh. I've seen that movie so many freaking, I can literally recite it. Richmond High would be like, but Repo Man, I've gone to like every kind of screening they've ever had of that thing. Um, but... It's funny because that when I went when I was the freshman at Emerson College, uh, that was like on VHS. The movie barely didn't didn't even get a theatrical. It went right to VHS, but then it actually played theatrically at the Nickelodeon Theater in Boston. 
So that was kind of like one of my first real discoveries of a kind of cult movie, um, you know, and I just love that movie, you know, ordinary people. I fucking hate them. <laughs> you know? I would say like, you know, why, why would you ever want to be ordinary and or normal? That doesn't sound like fun to me. Yeah. 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 I, I just I just love that. I love everything about that film. And Richmond High was, you know, like, you know, Road Warrior Richmond High. When I was in college, there'd be movies like Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club. I would literally watch on a loop, you know, when like every Sunday. It's so cool because like literally when I walked into Emerson College as a freshman, they had the movie club night. You know, they had the little film theater and the first movie i saw there was sorcerer i couldn't i mean oh my god dude sorcerer with uh roy scheider right yeah the freak okay. and it's an amazing film that i have luck i have failed trying to convince my family it's amazing I, but i think it's a, a phenomenal film and again you know you're literally it's like your first week of college and you're watching this you know that and you're in the in the film classroom and it just blew my mind i i thought it was a remarkable film uh, and again, you know, like I would go on to uh, talk about Tangerine Dream score for Legend and the uh, Blu-ray of Legend, you know, so all this stuff kind of would, you know, pay off, you know, in, in its way. You know, I've, I've actually I've interviewed Friedkin, you know, for Killer Joe, you know, with Tyler Bates, um, you know, so all this stuff kind of, again, pays off. You know, I'm, I'm 58 years old now, you know, and I've been seriously geeking on films since i was a kid seeing logan's run at the sack natick or the spy who loved me at the sack natick you know so i've always loved movies always and so again i have a real enthusiasm and, and love of film and music and you know and just and, and again i think there's a lot of people getting jaded there's a lot of toxic fandom which i really can't stand oh um, me either it, know, it's, it's like it's vile yeah, it's like, okay, well, if you don't like this movie, then you as a human being completely suck. Listen, you can tell me you hate Repo Man, and that's okay. You know what I mean? It's it's art, man. It's it's subjective. And, um, you know, and I, I hate the kind of toxicity that's gone into film and, you know, appreciation of film and the kind of snootiness and the the film the the, the, the film elitist one-upsmanship that goes up on Facebook, of, you know, kind of you know this this insane pretentiousness if you read my facebook i'm always kind of jibing you know at, at 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 you know people trying to impress with their cahier du cinema whatever <laughs> and, and it's like fuck i've that. noticed you know and then just like give me a fucking break dude you know? <laughs> it's, it's like i just love movies man i love all kinds of movies I, yeah, really I always watch. say if you have enough energy to hate on a movie, you have enough yeah. energy to love on a movie and just not like hate. You know, just why, why do that? I mean, literally, right before this interview, I just watched the the Umbrella Blu-ray release of Possession. You know, the the, um, the Polish movie with the this, with the Johnny and Sam Neill, and I'd never. Yes, yes. I mean, what? In it? That movie is just bug nuts. It's fucking crazy. I don't know what to think of it. I kind of liked it by the end of it, but but again, you know. Again, I just love I love discovering movies. My favorite era of film is, I'd say, 67 to 79. Um, but I love everything. I've been watching a lot during the pandemic. I watched every single Hammer Supernatural film. I literally bought every single Hammer movie that had to do with the supernatural. Um, you know, so, again, I'm just always watching like gun crazy detour. You know, uh, I'm just watching tons of movies from every genre every era i just love movies period you know 
We saw a lot, a lot of like in that respect. Yeah. I, I always say I crave input, and my input is, is movies first, music second. Yeah, I mean, dude, you know, me, but, I, play, I play games. You know, I can't. The Star Wars game is coming out Friday with Dan Roebuck playing a bearded, bearded alien in that thing, man. You know. Oh so, shit! I didn't know that. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Stan, Stan is a character in a Jedi Survivor. You know, so. My wife will be thrilled to hear that because that's a favorite series of game. Oh yeah, and that that is Friday. You know, so again, I I but again, I I go rafting, I go skiing. You know, um, I just did rafting and skiing to almost in a way to convince myself that I have I don't have a life. I try, I force myself to hike and you know get outdoors and you know, to be, be in reasonable shape and health and all that kind of stuff. I've always loved the outdoors, even you know even when I I worked at a movie trailer company called uh you know where i learned how to we all went for a ski weekend you know so it's it's like you know i think you gotta have a good appreciation for everything you know but just it's all about enthusiasm and that's what arcade and full moon goes back to is just an enthusiasm you know to really try to do your best to try to do something special that is gonna stand the test of time even in stuff that you think is gonna like completely disappear and no one will ever talk about again and i mean again you know for you and especially for dustin like you know like when dustin says arcade changed my life i'm like oh my god (laughs) it's like crazy i you know i would have had no idea that uh that the film would become a kind of cult thing i you know and i I, again i would love to see it you know full moon you know put this sucker out in blu-ray um i definitely think the audience is there you know uh, definitely, it is on my side. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Well, that that being said, I think we could probably stick a pin in this one for the evening or late, late afternoon. It's such, a, <laughs> such a pleasure talking to you, and again, I really appreciate. Oh, likewise. And it, it really means a lot to you know, you know. Again, you know, when you when you're me, it's like okay, you do all this stuff, and it's like you don't know. Yeah, no, please tell me when this is going to be on, and I'll totally link it on my site. And uh, again, I really, again, uh, so much appreciate your time and your interest. And uh, above all, oh, your... as I do, as I do too, I appreciate yeah, you giving me some time out of your busy schedule, and your your enthusiasm is <laughs> Not amazing. Busy, but but it, but I appreciate being able to talk with you. So. Oh, I appreciate it as well, sir. Well, I guess we'll sign off for for the evening, folks at home. Uh, thank you for tuning in.